T.D. Bingham and I went out to the Adjustment Center yard there in San Quentin. Mo Farrell and Bosco, Emmy, had hit Hawaiian John. Mo had told me that he was going to hit Hawaiian John, and I told him, no, you're not. He's an associate. He hit him anyway. They hit him 18 times, but they didn't kill him. So as soon as they cleared T.D. and I for the yard, we went out to the yard. Now, you remember the yard in San Quentin Adjustment Center, the guard's shack was just up off the yard. I mean, it was no more than uh, 12 feet off the ground. And the fences went right up underneath it. So we were in the center yard that had three yards, and it was right in front of death row. But um, they started with a shotgun, and then they would go to the Mini-14. In this case, T.D. and I both took five rounds from that shotgun in the back. The thing that stopped us was that that damn shot is so hot um, and it's burning you. So each time you get shot, you got all that lead in you and it's on fire and it's burning you. And uh, the only reason it didn't hit our heart or our lungs was because T.D. and I both were lifting iron at the time. So we had a lot of muscle over our backs. And that's the only thing that stopped that. So the key to survival there in the night fight I was in with Yogi uh, was to keep moving. Now, I took a, um, an M14 slug in my back that day, um, and it um, obviously put me down. But um, not before I had engaged Yogi, and, and we did our dance in the context of that yard. I mean, you just had to keep moving, and you knew that. Thank you for supporting our sponsor, HelloFresh. The box has arrived, and I'm so looking forward to the bean chili and the North Indian sag paneer. So, Jen, what do you think of the quality of the ingredients? So, from looking at it, it all looks really fresh, actually. And for our busy podcasting life, I think it'll be perfect. So, Sean, what do you like about cooking your meals from scratch? Gets me off the bloody computer. Do you find cooking with HelloFresh easy and stress-free, Jen? Well, one of the menus I've been sent you can do in under five minutes which is perfect for my busy lifestyle what have you learned with hellofresh jen that i can actually cook how do you feel when cooking with hellofresh jen it gets me excited about cooking again how does it help you to try new meals you've never cooked before i was always terrible at cooking before hellofresh and now i can make a meal in 35 minutes Plus 25% off the next two months using my code SEAN60, S-H-A-U-N-6-0. So click the link to get 60% off your first box. So this promo is only available until October the 3rd. After October 3rd, the promo will change, as will the link in the description box. All right, so we've had endless viewers demanding that Michael Thompson meet john abbott on the screen and we have made it happen we have overcome the technological obstacles today and here we are and i'm just you know if you've not seen john's four podcasts he's done with us time in san quentin escaped shootouts in california shootouts with the canadians mm. ends up in canada priest pleasant and then michael's own story uh 45 years inside, shot 22 times. Mm. I mean, the, the, the things these guys have both been through. And prison was different back then. Now you've got the industrial prisons where people are commodities. But back then it was raw 
survival every mm-hmm. single day. Mm-hmm. And I think these guys talking are going to go down some avenues we, we otherwise wouldn't have gone down because they're going to relate to everything that was going on back then, especially in San Quentin. So well, would, um, would you like to? Yeah, I, love, I, yeah, I love that intro. I do. And, and um, I'm, I'm finally glad to see John on camera. Um, you know, I'm well aware of him. Well, unfortunately, you, I've just got Sean's kitchen as a backdrop. But <laughs> you've you set up a lovely kind of sort of man's den. You, you have, need some yeah, scalps yeah. there. You need some scalps hanging from the spear. <laughs> I mean, yeah. you, you can see where his tech mind is, because everything that's there sort of is, we're talking the 19th century, right? Whereas yeah. um, I'm sort of stuck here in the, the late, what, what, I didn't even know what century it is, 21st? <laughs> Somewhere around there, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it's hard to keep up with it, John, you're right. You know, particularly when you when you think about where we come from, you know, the idea of San Quentin. I mean, when I hit San Quentin, they were still walking the tier with uh, a bucket of hot water and a ladle, and you stuck your cup out the bars and, and got your hot water. So when was and, that then? Well, that was um, well, mid-70s, actually. And um, Well, put it this way. Do you remember your B number? Yeah, B68010. Okay, well, mine's B seven six five two zero. Yeah, <laughs> so, so that's that's about two or three years, maybe difference. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah, Something it's like it's, it's not bad, but uh, yeah, and you had um, you didn't have that many people, as you recall. There was like thirteen, fourteen thousand prisoners in the whole state of California at that time. Yeah, so we had our A numbers, and then we had our B numbers, you know, and that took decades in order for that to occur. And then with the implosion of prisons, what happened was that you know now you're into uh, double numbers, you know, they're into AAs and BBs, but they're all the way through the alphabet twice. Oh, wow. Um, oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. So, wow. I mean, you wouldn't, um, you wouldn't recognize the, the prison system now, John. Well, um, I, I saw one video of, of the gym at San Quentin. Now I can remember yeah. the gym being great big open space. People could play basketball. It was a weight pit. Guys could, uh, there was a boxing mm-hmm. ring in the corner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, nowadays, I think it's just uh, triple bunk beds back to back, basically. Well, they eliminated that. No, they, they did? They, yeah, they did away with the, the bunk beds back to back. And, and you know, they built 33 new prisons. And uh, it's become um, a real industry. And then that doesn't include the private prisons that uh, Geo put up. You know, and interestingly enough, when you were at San Quentin, uh, John Campbell, um, was one of the administrators, and John Campbell is now the CEO of Geo, running the private oh, prisons. Wow. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So it's 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 a real industry, and um, you know a lot of money involved, uh, a lot of politics involved. You know the politics that you and I incurred in San Quentin in the seventies, nothing like what exists today. Nothing. You know back then, Captain's Porch. Remember the Captain's Porch? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. You know if, if you saw the warden. Uh, walking the the grounds, the prison grounds, usually he was over on the captain's porch, but, you know, you didn't hesitate to walk up to the warden and talk to him. Um, that's, you can't even do that with a lieutenant now. Um, oh, is that right? Yeah, wow. you pretty much your, your sergeants run the institution and then, you know, your chain of command, but you don't see um, uh, the warden walking around. If If you do, they close down the prison now and uh, they literally shut it down. And lock everybody up, and then the warden walks the grounds with uh, his staff. 
Wow. So is, is he afraid then that some, some, some prisoner might actually say something to him? Well, I think that's, it's more than that. I think they're afraid they may be attacked. <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. Rightly so. Mm. Well, yeah, you're not going to get an argument out of me, particularly with the conditions that exist now by way of food and, you know, the conditions of living. I mean, to hear them tell it, they're working on it. Uh, but man, they got a long way to go. You know, what they did was they emphasized the idea of the influx of prisoners uh, in the state of California. We went from 14,000 to 170,000. And, um, you know, the infrastructure, even with the new prisons, wasn't set up to handle them. You know, you remember at San Quentin, we used to have our own farm, our own pig farm. You know, they used to go out and catch them salmon and bring them salmon in, and we'd have salmon steaks and stuff like that. You don't have any of that anymore. Used to have their own butcher shop, don't have that anymore. Um, all the dairies have been converted to sell the product uh, to um, outside vendors. So. Well I, I remember the politics were that the um, the guards union, the union of prison guards, was the strongest mm. union in California, and they right. used to give the biggest donations to the governor or whoever it was was running for politics. Yeah, and so the more prisons there are, then the more guards, and the bigger the union, mm -hmm. the bigger the donations. So it has a nice yeah. kind of symmetry to it, you know. Well, they have a heck of a war chest, and you're right; they're the strongest union in the state of California. And um, they do contribute uh, substantially to not only the governor's office, but uh, to state senators and otherwise. So the, the very, very strong union. Do you remember Don Novi? No, no. All right. Don Novi was the, his, his father, Dick Novi, started the union back in 56. And oh, then wow. Don, Don, his son, took over in the 70s, about the time you and I were both at San Quentin. And what he did was he obtained a memorandum of understanding based on the California Highway Patrol um, um, memorandum of understanding with the governor. And so that's when they acquired peace officer status. I don't know if you remember, but prior to that, the guards um, didn't have peace officer status. So, you know, you could just look up on. Yeah. Does that meant they didn't carry guns or what? What actually in real terms does yeah, that mean? Yeah, the peace officer status gives them the um, ability to carry guns off duty. And Do you, um, do you remember a, a case of a guy called Bob Seabock? Mm -hmm. Now, Bob was in the Venceremos, this kind of leftist uh, radical group. Mm -hmm. And he and a group of his friends decided to ambush one of the gray geese, one of the gray goose uh, buses taking mm -hmm. some prisoners. Mm -hmm. And they they ambushed the bus, and then they shot dead. They shot two guards, killed one of them. Mm -hmm. A guy, and they freed a black prisoner called Beatty. Mm -hmm. Do you remember him? Yeah, Seabock yeah, is um, actually there's a court case, precedent setting sort court case in Seabock, insofar as due process rights. And you know you see that we have a number of cases, um, you know that, that go back to about that era. Um, I remember the incident that you're talking about, um, you know, that was coincided with, uh, you remember when, um, the BGF took over the courthouse. That's it. Uh, yeah. 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 Mm -hmm. Brooks was one of them. I remember because I did battle with Brooks on the yard at old Folsom, uh, him and Larry justice. Um, and they were both a part of that taking over the courthouse and, uh, the execution of, of, um, the guards. How did they uh, take over the courthouse, Mike? Uh, they walked into the courthouse and managed to to um, acquire weapons to get past. You know, they had metal detection at that time. They had just acquired metal detection. 
but um, there were different ways to get around that. I mean, it's, it was like, um, oh, what was his name? George Jackson. Now, George Jackson was a revolutionary and associated with the Black Rally family, and there was a tie also to the Black Panthers, but his attorney smuggled a, a handgun under a wig into San Quentin, and then he was able to bring that into the Adjustment Center, and um, they took over the Adjustment Center. So that was with um, Hugo Yogi Pinnell and George Jackson and a few other individuals, and um, they took over the Adjustment Center with the help of the Black Guards, by the way. And uh, they ended up um, cutting the throats of the guards and the white inmates. And then George Jackson, um, really, it was a suicide mission. He ran out into the yard with his pistol. And, of course, he got capped immediately, so he was killed. And, um, uh, and then Yogi was sent to Old Folsom. That's actually where I met Yogi. I was at Old Folsom at the time. And... Um, well, the reason I mentioned Seabuck was because the guards that he shot were, weren't armed. Right. So I'm wondering if it was before the time that you're talking about when they became peace officers. It actually was, yeah. I I'm, I'm, don't have it on the tip of my tongue insofar as when they acquired peace officer status, but I think it was the late 70s. It could have been as late as 80. But, um, you know, by 80, let's see, I left San Quentin in 80, as a matter of fact. And um, uh, took the Grey Goose down to uh, Chino. And um, so, so you were in San Quentin for from when to when? Well, I, I left Old Folsom in '77, and actually, I was kicked out of Old Folsom. Uh, T.D. Bingham, myself, uh, Spotsburg, and Bobby Moore, and um, we'd gotten into an altercation with the um, Black Rella family on the yard. So um, the havoc was such that uh, they essentially kicked us out of Folsom. So they put the four of us in a convoy and ran us down to San Quentin sometime in 77, I believe. So we got there and, and TD and I went into the adjustment center and um, Bobby and uh, Spots went over to East Block. And well, um, yeah. The reason I mentioned it is that's exactly the time I was in San Quentin from about 78, 79, 80. Yeah, we were there together. So, yeah, I was East Block Bayside, fifth tier. Okay, okay. East Block Bayside was where uh, you would have seen Bobby and Spots both. Now, we pulled them eventually over to the Adjustment Center. But at that time, in the Adjustment Center, I don't know if you remember Mo Farrell. He was Emmy. And um, you had uh, Bosco and a few other um, Emmy members over there. But um, Harpo and Jerry were there. Um, uh Jerry Hendershot and um and uh, Harper was his last name they called him Harpo um they were in the adjustment center but they were brand and the only brand we had on the yard main line at that time I think was Rick Turflinger and um so Rick was out there and of course you know Doug the Thug was out there and um Rotten Richard well, I, I think you said in one of your podcasts that uh, the Hells Angels kind of had um sort of dual status in the AB, mm -hmm. is that right? Yeah, yeah. What happened was that when some members of the Hells Angels would come into uh, prison, like San Quentin or Old Folsom, depending on, on their status within uh, the red and white, um, they would essentially adopt uh, the Aryan Brotherhood status. In other words, they were members of the Aryan Brotherhood. And, um, you know, I've been trying to think of the brother's name. He was a big old boy. Um, weighed over 400 pounds. Now he was, he was HA. And when he would come in, then um, 
he would adopt the um, Aryan Brotherhood status. So, you know, there was a give and take relative to that. The biggest problem that you had with the brand back in those days was that uh, the minute uh, a member paroled, you just kind of like took off that that coat, if you will, of, of AB and put on an, an HA patch or another type of patch. But typically it was an HA patch. And uh, because they were there locally, you had the Oakland chapter at that time. You still have the Oakland chapter. But I think um, Rotten Richard was in the Adjustment Center there with us. And uh, he ran, I think he was president of the Oakland chapter at that time. But, well, the thing, um, the, thing I'm, the thing I was wondering was, at that time when I was there, if you, if you were identified as AB, you were just bagged up usually and sent to the adjustment center. Yeah, that's or, pretty much always the case. Yeah. It, uh, so that's why, um, particularly at that time, um, no one wore the shamrock uh, for that reason. Because if you were validated or identified as a brand member, then, like you say, you were gaffled up and you were put in a hole uh, because they didn't want you on the main line. Um, you know, at that time, particularly between the adjustment center, which was the overflow for the shelf at that time, and it may still be, I don't know, but um, I would put um, CB radios like an East Block. And uh, I had the main unit in the hole with me so that I could can communicate with individuals out there on the main line. So, I mean, you had a number of things going back then, as you will probably recall, when they took somebody off the shelf and say they were taking them to New Miller Hospital, which was quite a walk, you know, all you heard was dead man walking. And um, the instruction was is that everybody had to turn away and turn their back to that individual walking as he was escorted in and um, leg irons and, and handcuffs and waist chains uh, to New Miller Hospital. So... But you know, I think San Quentin is now level two. Um, well, it's uh, parole, parole violators, isn't it? Something like that. Something along those lines, which essentially makes it a level two. And I think Old Folsom now is a level three. I mean, they're old prisons. And so they don't have the security that the new prisons have. And so they use them for a lesser custody uh, prisoner now. You know, and back in our day, um, that was the big house. San Quentin was the big house and Old Folsom was the big house. And um, well, it certainly looked like it. I mean, yeah, it, <laughs> yeah. I actually only went to Old Folsom for one night, and uh, it was it was creepy. It was like old men coughing their lungs out. Yeah, and yeah. noises yeah. and yeah. It, it I was remember a bad when that feeling. Me. Oh yeah, yeah. And I hear what you're saying because um, when they took me to Old Folsom, I was uh, convoyed up from Tracy. I'd been in a few altercations down there and I got to Old Folsom and they took me through the big old black strap iron gate in the front there. And they had the gunner up on top. And the first thing he told me, he says, boy, we, we shoot people around here. And I, I just looked at him. So as I was walking across the yard, they were taking me to um, the hole. I was the youngest person there. And as I walked across the yard, all I saw were gray heads. Yeah. yeah. Nothing but gray heads. And, um, I mean, you know, for a youngster like me, I was in my 20s and um, I'm walking across this yard and I've got all these old convicts turning and looking at me and talking about, um, um, looks like you got yourself in a fix, boy, or, or it looks like you got yourself in a fix, youngster. You know, youngster was the common term um, and certainly applied to me from these cats that were in their 50s and 60s and 70s. Um, 
but uh yeah Folsom was different you know um I did time in the hole in San Quentin which was no big thing really I mean um you had your strip cells and everything else but I actually did did time in the dungeon at old Folsom and that was the old black stripe iron uh, doors and you know they could block out all light and, and did and all you had was a hole in the floor San Quentin wasn't that primitive yeah uh, I mean, they had their cells, but uh, I don't know if you remember the size of your cell, but I could take my elbow and put it on one wall and then reach my arm out the other way and touch the wall on the yeah, other side. Yeah, yeah. Just enough past uh, to get by the, on, on the bunks. I got a question so, for you about um, yeah. uh, after I had an altercation in the library in San Quentin, I ended up in uh, North Block in Punitive Seg. Yeah. And I got to tell you, it was an absolute madhouse. I mean, yeah. the guys were screaming and shouting at each other like madmen, you know? Go up, your mother, peck of wood, and someone else is screaming, you fucking mm-hmm. baboon, and then I'll kill yeah. you. And they're going on and mm-hmm. on and on. And pretty yeah. soon the doors start banging in the frames, and guys mm-hmm. lighting the toilet paper on fire and jamming the mm-hmm. toilets, and water is mm-hmm. overflowing the tear. Mm-hmm. And I just thought to myself, these guys, how are you going to live and do time like this with all this mm-hmm. going on day in, day out? You tell me how it was, because, I mean, mm-hmm. I just thought to myself, this is just bedlam. It's a madhouse. So. Well, you're right. It is. I mean, it um, in particular, where you're talking about on the shelf, I've been there. Um, and so I know what you're talking about when you when you're when you describe the effects and the effect that you're really describing, John, is is what it's like to put a human being in a cage. And so that when you're in that cage, particularly the cages in San Quentin, because they were just out of cage, um, you know, that wears on you. And, you know, we don't hear enough conversation even to this day about what it's like to put a human being in a cage. So, I mean, you had some guys that were more disciplined, and I was one of them. So you worked out every day. And, um, you know, in my case, I was learning how to read and write. And so, you know, I was in the books. And um, eventually, you know, they had that program there at um, UC Berkeley. And it was a correspondence course. So I was in my undergraduate studies at Berkeley. And uh, so I kept my, my face in the books. And, and uh, of course, we had our gang activity. So, you know, at that time, uh, I was restructuring the infrastructure of the brand at San Quentin. So it was about communications. So as you know, uh, the brand ran all the job programs um, in San Quentin. So we assigned clerks to different areas. And, and if I needed to meet with somebody, I would have them duck at me off the shelf to the x-ray laboratory in New Miller Hospital. And so we would meet there and then we'd do our business and then we'd be escorted back. And there was really nothing they could do about that. If you got a ducat, as you know, then, you know, the guards had to come get you and escort you over. Um, but, you know, going back to the idea of the bedlam uh, that existed on those tiers, you know, that was real. And it was um, really a form of uh, collective psychosis. Um, you know, I've coined the term in earlier years, pinkosis, and that's where you take the penitentiary and psychosis and you merge the two as a result of a human being being in a cage. And um, the term actually comes from zoocosis, where they take a wild animal and they capture it and they put it in a cage and it dies. And um, the thing we need to remember, even as human beings, and even though we've been blessed with those four layers of the brain and, and cognitive ability, is that it still impacts upon you being in that cage. And um, well, I mean, sometimes guys would say, you know, rest your neck. The, the gates are not open and you're not going to kill anyone. Right. Uh, it's just dummy up. Right. 
Well, yeah. But the, the voices of reason were, were few and far between. That's true. Yeah. So it was, it was a, sort of a venting process. You know, you got guys that talk out the side of their neck all day long. And, um, you know, I've, I don't know if you remember the term jawjacker, but, you know, I've um, reinvented that term in recent years in my writings and otherwise so that people begin to understand what a jawjacker is. You know, it's not just somebody that talks out the side of their neck, but it's, it's somebody that just jacks their jaw because they, they need to. You know, oh, we, need... we used to call it selling wolf tickets, you know? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I've, I've, I've heard a, a few wolf tickets over the years. And, you know, we call them cell warriors, you know, they're selling wolf tickets. And uh, we've all got the terminology relative to, you know, how to shut somebody down in that. I mean, it um, you used to hear people go back and forth, you know, uh, talking to each other. And it was a it was a release, actually, for them. You know, some well, people. I, I got to say right. something that actually I, I used to f- listen to it. I used to sit and listen to them yeah. because you had nothing else to do. It was basically the entertainment right. we had. Yeah. And I got the feeling that the blacks were basically a bit more intelligent and a bit better at it than the whites were, right? Very much so. Would, I mean, yeah. The, the whites would just come off with straight up abuse, but the blacks would like spin little stories where they didn't yeah. really make it. To- mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, no, they had it down. And, you know, that's that being streetwise. Yeah. You know, growing up in, in the inner city and, um, you know, you're right. I mean, the blacks had their Mac in place so they could Mac all day long. And um, it was rare to find uh, the white boy that could stay up with him, you know, yeah. relative to that, uh, that talk, that Mac. Yeah. Uh, there were a few, you know, Ronnie Harper was one of them. You know, he, he would stay with them all day long and, and typically shut them down. But again, that was, that was their way of actually coping with where they were at. Right. Um, you know, releasing that stress to some extent. And you had people, I mean, I've, you may not have, but I've had people, I've watched them hang themselves. I've watched them cut their own throats because they couldn't deal with the, the cell. Yeah. Um, and the time that we were doing in the cells, at the, you know, during that, I mean, you were in East Block initially and you went to North Block, but you were Bayside East Block. So you had all those windows and they were all broken out so that you could get air. Yeah. See, and during the winter, we used to smuggle wood in from the warehouse and build little fires in front of our cell to keep warm. I mean, I had a pipe, as a matter of fact, this pipe right here, this pipe's name is stove. And I had that with me. And what I would do is that um, I would, I would, you know, back then, remember they supplied tobacco to us? Yeah. Used to get Bull Durham. That's right. Bull Durham. I, used to, I used to pack a stove here with tobacco and I'd get it glowing just red hot and I'd wrap my hands around it and that would keep me warm. You know, and that's one of the, you know, methods that I used. I mean, in addition to building fires in front of my cell, uh, that didn't please the guards because where you were at and where I was at, they had that catwalk out in front of the cells. So they'd walk with their M14s on that catwalk. And, you know, they'd tell you, put the fire out. And, you know, you know what the response was. Um, You want the fire out, you put the fire out. You know, but the guards typically back then weren't going to come on the tier. Um, No to facilitate that um well i mean guys would just be throwing cups of shit and piss on them if they did so yeah they get gas that's right it's one of the things that i never engaged in was gassing um i don't believe in it you know it's like you know i don't care what your thinking is about another man Uh, i'm not going to spit on him i'm not going to throw caustic materials like urine or feces on him um 
there's no respect in that. Uh, I would never do something like that. I actually received write-ups for it, but that was during riots that we had back in Old Folsom where they just, um, you know, the burning that you're talking about and the flooding and everything else, um, and they would just write everybody up. Uh, they wouldn't even come on the tier. They just would go down right. the ledger and you'd get a write-up. And um, But I actually never engaged uh, in that activity. Uh, but you're right. It went on a lot. Uh, well, I could never see the point because no. we were we were in a powerless position. That's and right. there are so many different ways that they could they could get theirs on us that needlessly yeah. provoking them was mm-hmm. pointless and just mm-hmm. dangerous, right? Yeah. I've got a question for you, and this is something that I don't I I don't understand. Mm-hmm. You know, in, in your second podcast, it talked about um going man on man, mano a mano mm-hmm. in knife mm-hmm. fights with Mm-hmm. You know, Hugo Pinel and different people. Mm-hmm. And this is on the yard. Mm-hmm. Now, what I'm wondering is if, if you both want to be there, if you both choose to be there, why mm-hmm. not choose a quiet place, some place where you can work it out with nobody watching and nobody interrupting the program? I mean, yeah, those if, you, real. Mm-hmm. if you do it on the upper yard, you're only going to be in it for a couple minutes at least right. before right. it gets broken up. Yeah, the ideal situation is to find a blind spot like you're talking about. And that's really what you're talking about is a blind spot where you put point people out and then you both have your weapons and you engage in combat. And I've done that, you know, and that's actually where you have the opportunity to bleed your opponent. And, you know, it becomes a real dance associated with that. But in a case of like uh, Yogi Pinnell and we were in the hole, so you don't have the opportunity to go to to go elsewhere. So the key to survival there in the night fight I was in with Yogi uh, was to keep moving. Now, I took a um, an M14 slug in my back that day, um, and it um, obviously put me down. But um, not before I had engaged Yogi, and, and we did our dance in the context of that yard. I mean, you just had to keep moving, and you knew that. Well, the thing is, you you saw, for me, the gunners mm-hmm. were, were more of a risk. They're, they were the danger. They were the lethal danger as far as I was concerned. So the idea yeah. of having a fist fight, I mean, I had a guy who tried to start a fist fight on the upper yard at Quentin, but I just ducked out of it because the last thing I want to do is give the gunners a chance to shoot mm-hmm. me through the spine or something and drop me yeah, on well, the deck. That's why you don't engage in fist fights. I mean, fist fights, for all intents and purposes, really weren't allowed. And um, I mean, they happen, don't get me wrong, as you well know. But a fist fight would shut down business. So, you know, if you had a fight, then they had to do a risk assessment, particularly if they were gang members. And so they would shut down the joint and that stopped business. So you didn't want to intrude upon that business. Um, but, um, you know, I don't know that I've ever really been in a fist fight in prison. You know, I've been in many knife fights, uh, but that's the point that it has to come to. You know, um, um, the exception there was... Uh, uh, T.D. Bingham and I went out to the Adjustment Center yard there in San Quentin. Um, Mo Farrell and Bosco, Emmy, had hit um, Hawaiian John. And uh, Hawaiian John, um, I we just arrived there the night before. And I told, uh, Mo had told me that he was going to hit Hawaiian John. And I told him, no, you're not. He's an associate. He hit him anyway. They hit him 18 times, but they didn't kill him. So as soon as they cleared T.D. and I for the yard, we went out to the yard. Now, you remember the yard in San Quentin Adjustment Center, the guard's shack was just up off the yard. I mean, it was no more than uh, 12 feet off the ground. And the fences went right up underneath it. So we were in the center yard that had three yards. 
and it was right in front of death row. But um, they started with a shotgun, and then they would go to the Mini-14. In this case, TD and I both took five rounds from that shotgun in the back. So that's 10 rounds total. So they're using birdshot, or they're using double-up buck, or what? Well, they used both. It depended. You know, I've got shot throughout my entire body still to this day. Um, you know, as a result of the encounters at San Quentin. But the purpose in telling you that story is that there were no knives involved that day. That really was a fist fight. Um, and the idea was to um, beat the hell out of Mo uh, for having stabbed Hawaiian John. And uh, we really didn't have time to acquire knives at that point um, because we had just gotten there. So, yeah, that's the one exception where there was a fist fight. And um, while I had it in my head that I was going to do certain things, it didn't quite turn out that way because um, uh, Fred, who was the gunner, um, ex-Vietnam vet, hell on wheels. I've never seen anybody handle a shotgun that well. And uh, while he was firing, he was reloading. And, um, you know, he hit both TD and I five times each. And the thing that the thing that stopped us was that that damn shot is so hot um, and it's burning you. So each time you get shot, you've got all that lead in you and it's on fire and it's burning you. And uh, the only reason it didn't hit our heart or our lungs was because TD and I both were lifting iron at the time. So we had a lot of muscle over our backs. And that's the only thing that stopped that. But um, at any rate, I don't want to get too off. Um, course here, but point is, is that that's the one exception where I did have a fist fight, and otherwise, there were no fist fights. They were all knife fights. And, well, I uh, mean, the, for the gunners, it was all the same. They couldn't differentiate at distance if you were fist fighting or plunging the guy, mm-hmm. so they just shot you anyway. Yeah, that's so right. The idea of getting involved in any action on the yard mm-hmm. <laughs> was yeah. completely out of it. Well, it, it is, and, and it had to be worth it. See, that was the thing. Um, you know, if you weren't tipped up, if you weren't a part of a gang, then to get in an altercation would put the uh, business revenues of the gangs at risk. So that if you got into an altercation without permission of the gang, uh, that could put you in trouble in and of itself. Yeah, well, you're saying that about resources and the rest of it. But I seem to remember that the AB and the AB wannabes would just mm-hmm. go out and stab whatever black they thought was in the BGF. And then there'd be a retaliation and then a counter retaliation. I mean, surely that's got to be bad for business too. You're probably seen that way, but you want to remember that within the adjustment center at that time, it's like when we arrived from old Folsom, um, I don't know if you remember um, Tahari. Tahari was BGF and he was there in the adjustment center and he was one of the lieutenants of uh, the BGF. So when we arrived there, um, their goal was to get to us. Uh, they were enemies. So they would cut the bars out of their cell. And when they would escort us in off the yard, you know, you were cuffed behind your back and then you came onto the tier. And um, they would come out of their cell in an attempt to kill us on the tier. Um, so it wasn't uh, um, so much a kill on site. It, it's, it was the opportunity that presented itself. Now, I had situations where I had an individual coming out of his cell. The guards ran off the tier. I went to a designated cell, had the handcuffs removed, was given a knife, and went down to deal with the situation. Um, you know, in this one particular case, uh, the damn idiot got stuck in the in the bars. He didn't cut out enough bars, so he got stuck. And um, 
you know, I wasn't going to hurt him. I just pushed him back in and um, took his knife away from him. He had a big old bone crusher. But, um, you know, so the the idea of just going out and stabbing somebody, it didn't really happen like that because for the most part, um, they had the yard segregated. So center yard was um, Mexican mafia, Aryan Brotherhood. And then the far yard was BGF, Black Panthers, Texas Syndicate, uh, Nuestra Familia. And then the first yard um, were your regs. So you had your regs and um, that typically weren't tipped up. So they segregated it in that way. At Folsom, it wasn't segregated. So we were able to go to the yard and we were able to do battle and did do battle. Um, so it was, it well, was I, w- I wouldn't different. be talking about the adjustment center. I'd be talking about the main line. I yeah, main line. I mean, one, this uh, guy who was suspected of being a BGF member showed up on the fish tier. Mm-hmm. And almost instantly, two guys were sent, and they stabbed him about 17, 20 times. Yeah. And, of yeah. course, then, yeah. then there was the retaliation that the BGF mm-hmm. were going to be doing. And mm-hmm. this is when they uh, attacked all the white boys in uh, the library, mm-hmm. trying to stab four people there. So mm-hmm. it seemed to me that, uh, that these kind of racial attacks were just bouncing back and forth pretty regularly. Uh, yeah. That's, so this is why I was wondering – because whenever they did one of those attacks, there'd be a lockdown. So then mm-hmm. business presumably would, would suffer. Yeah, you couldn't give the individual who had arrived, if he was tipped up, say with the BGF, the opportunity to establish himself. Uh, because the whole idea behind what was going on there was the control of the resources. So that if you gave him the opportunity to bring his people together and organize them, and then that impacted upon the control of the resources. So because they were enemies, then the minute a person drove up and he was identified as an enemy, then he was hit. And, you know, that's one of the characteristics of, of controlling your environment uh, and of necessity. If the, if the prison was slammed as a result of that, then it was. Uh, then you prepared, like you say, for the retaliation. But um, that required that somebody be in place to retaliate. Now, oftentimes... Well, this is the thing, because the guys who got retaliated against would just be any white boy they could find. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that was usually the case. I mean, it was my, it was my pet peeve. And, and, you know, you had the neo-Nazi group there in San Quentin on the yard. And they would talk out the side of their neck all day long, um, particularly uh, demeaning and, and degrading blacks. Um, but then when it came time to get down, they were nowhere to be found. And what would happen is just what you just said is that the blacks would look for any white and um, stab them, you know, just in, in retaliation for what the neo-Nazis have been putting out there. Um, and that was always one of my pet. It's actually why I went to war against the neo-Nazis um, because of that modality that they incorporated in their status on the main line. And well, it was, that, it, was, it was that very same group. Uh, neo-nazis mm-hmm. that phil and i phil thompson and i had to mm-hmm. confront one time because they mm-hmm. they told me that i had to get off the yard or go stab mm-hmm. a black and they didn't care mm-hmm. which black it was mm-hmm. and so yeah. that was the drama well the bitch of that is john is that they weren't doing that themselves you see they were attempting to recruit regs like yourself you know you were a reg and um stand up and so they attempted to impose upon you the idea that you have to do this. And if you don't, you have to lock up, you see. And the uh, they, yeah, and they did that a lot. Um, and a lot of people don't understand that about prison or the imprison, prison environment. But that's why I took issue with the neo-Nazis. First of all, you're not running a damn thing. 
And, and second of all, you're not backing up anything, you know, finally what the, you know, the, the straw, so to speak, that broke the camel's back for me was that it was one of those instances where they were, again, jacking their jaws, the blacks retaliated, they stabbed a bunch of, of white guys that had no idea what the hell was going on. And so then I took issue with the neo-Nazis and I attacked them and um, effectively. And, um, you know, that shut it down for quite a while. You know, it was their so-called Fuhrer. I'm trying to remember his name. Uh, Brian Weiss, maybe? Um, that's the name I remember, I remember the face, but I don't remember the name because I had words with him myself. Blonde hair? <laughs> it was down in the corner there. You know where they used to call, right in the corner of the yard, far in the yard there? They used the to call yard? the garden. The big oh, yard, okay. the garden, okay. down where they call okay. it. Yeah, that became Coyote Park. And, um, you know, that's eventually where we built sweat lodges for our ceremonies oh, down, in, down, yeah, down in Coyote Park. Uh, that's what we named it. Um, but I know exactly where you're talking about. Now, they've done a lot of rebuilding in San Quentin. But back then, you know, you had the old brickyard and that was the lower yard. And that's where R&R &R was at. And then you could move out into where you're talking about into that garden area. And um but um, a lot of killings, a lot of stabbings happened down there on that brickyard, you know, right up against that um, brick face. Yeah. As you went the other side of R&R, &R. a lot of killings down there. Well, there were certain blind spots that people favored, you know. That's right. Yeah. So, yeah. So but it, I remember uh, the rotundra coming through the rotundra going to Chow was also a mm -hmm. favorite. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. It's a blind spot. And um, any, any place that you had stairs was a blind spot. You know, if you could have somebody ducketed to New Miller Hospital, then you had a multitude of blind spots in the hospital. You know, the problem there was, is back when you and I were there, the triage teams in New Miller Hospital um, were out of Vietnam. So the thing was, is that if you were in a knife fight, no matter how severely you were injured, if you weren't killed on the spot, they could save you. And they did. Yeah. You know, it just, it was amazing how many people they did save, um, you know, for that reason. I've got a question for you. There was a, people kept talking about this famous case where a guy was, I think it might've been old Folsom where a guy mm -hmm. was ducketed to the chapel and, mm -hmm. it, and of course he was taken out, but mm -hmm. it became an expression ducketed to the chapel. Mm -hmm. do, you, yeah. do you remember this case? Yeah, I do. And I know what you're talking about. See, the problem with that is, is that uh, that was supposed to be a neutral area. In other words, you didn't impose upon the clergy or the church in that capacity. In other words, you respected certain things. You didn't stab somebody in the visiting room in front of their family. You didn't stab somebody in the church because that was the church. So, you know, that was, that's why it became an infamous case is because the person had been ducketed to the chapel and was killed in the chapel. And um, that was unprecedented. And um, to my understanding, it never happened again, but the term, the term held. Which group, which group was involved in that one? I think that had to do with, um, matter of fact, I do think that was the brand because you had uh, Dennis Murphy who was on the line there and um, they called him Irish Murphy. And uh, he had suggested that he hadn't condoned that. So, but the fact of the matter is, is that the individual who was killed was ducketed um, to the chapel and was killed. But uh, it was not sanctioned. Well, it was it was famous midst the white boys as an expression. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> mm. yeah, you you have that. 
um, not only at Old Folsom, but at San Quentin. So you want to remember that Old Folsom and San Quentin both were strongholds for the brand. And, um, you know, the brand ran both joints, along with Mexican Mafia. So the, the influx of Black Panthers or BGF or Texas Syndicate or um, very rarely did you see Nuestra Familia. But, um, you know, up at Old Folsom, we had the Sibonese Liberation Army with Joe Romero and his group. You know, Manson and his group were up there. And, um, you know, he had, you had Texas Syndicate. So you had a lot more um, open warfare up at Old Folsom. And a lot of that occurred uh, within the whole, although some did take place uh, on the main line. In San Quentin, again, you had uh, a lot of violence in the adjustment center, um, but you had also had violence on the main line where you were at. And um, it was significant violence, um, you know, where people were being killed. In the year that you got there, as I recall, uh, there were no less than 86 people killed on the main line at San Quentin. That's a lot of men in the course of a year to be stabbed to death. Um, so it was... Um, well, it was like no I said, I saw the biggest black I've ever seen, muscular guy, come out of North Block, just bleeding out on the gurney. Mm -hmm. A huge guy, absolutely monstrous. And they got him when mm -hmm. he's bench pressing. So, yeah. Right. <laughs> that was a standard ploy, was to hit somebody while they were on the bench press. Uh, I've seen that a number of times. Um, that wasn't the reason they took the iron away from us. But um, we had, um, in the adjustment center there, we had what we called the 500 Club. So, in, in, you know, each group used uh, the weight pile uh, as they rotated into each yard. So the most they would let, you may remember, we had pig iron. Um, yeah. So. Uh, Loose iron. Yeah. 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 Well, this was actually inside the adjustment center. It was welded. So they'd make one bar that held uh, 320 pounds. And then they had um, uh, the largest dumbbells were 100 pounds. So, you know, you could take and tie those dumbbells onto that 320 pounds and you had 520 pounds. And I mean, the bar would bend, literally bend because it was pig iron. We've got free podcast today, Jen. You're right to grab the magic mind drink. Two sacks. How many's left? The last one. What? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> We've got 30 podcasts to film over 17 days. I'm having this one, Jen. No! <laughs> So how's Magic Mind helping you, Jen? So since it is that lovely time of the month where women uh, get a bit grouchy, I've found it's helped me with the fatigue, the stress levels, the anxiety, the boost I needed to get me through this week of hell. Great. And why do you take Magic Mind? Because it is natural and it just gives me that boost in the morning. Sets me up for three podcasts in a day. So which ingredient helps you and why? So I read up the ashwagandha reduces stress and anxiety and I found that really helped. Yeah. Fantastic. So I'm going to recommend Magic Mind because so many people I know just ram that coffee down in the mornings. You can get your fix right here but with more natural ingredients. I have a 20% off code to show you guys. It's... Sean20. So it's S-H-A-U-N 20. To use it, you can go to www.magicminds.co forward slash Sean S-H-A-U-N 
and enter the code Sean20 at checkout. The best part is that they have a money back guarantee. If you get the subscription, it's a 40% off. My 40% off code only lasts 10 days. So hurry up. Uh, but there was three of us that could lift that. T.D. Bingham, Dirty Red, and myself. And then amongst the blacks, you had um, Mark Davidson and you had Tookie Williams eventually, you know, that uh, he was up on the shelf, you know, that were pushing that kind of iron. But uh, it, was, um, it was a common ploy, you know, ultimately, if you wanted somebody. I mean, I saw many a man bashed in the head with dumbbells yeah. um, to kill him. And then some that were just, when they get up underneath that kind of weight, when they brought the weight down to their chest, well, that yeah. just pinned them to the, to the bench. And then they'd be taken out. Well, and they're hard to be straining so much. The blood would just be pumping out of them when they got poked, yeah. right? So, yeah. 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 It, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's a gruesome thing to watch. I mean, you know, what isn't talked about enough, I think, John, in that context is the impact that that has upon the individual having seen things like that. I mean, it's, it's um, being exposed essentially to combat. Um, and, you know, that combat fatigue uh, whether you're engaged in that combat or not does impact upon you. Um, you know, th- these are memories. I mean, you yourself remember it just now as you were describing it, you were able to do so vividly. Yeah. Uh, the idea of the blood pumping out of that individual and that stays with you and it has an impact upon you. You know, it's traumatic. Um, but we don't hear enough talk about that. Uh, you know, what the trauma of prison actually does to an individual. You know, you look, um, you look pretty much intact. You know, you look healthy, you look like you take care of yourself. But I wonder, do you suffer from trauma? Well, the difference is, I mean, I didn't, I didn't spend decades inside. I didn't, you know, mm-hmm. I was the, the total of my incarceration might have been 11 years. Mm-hmm. So it didn't have enough time, really, I suppose, to, uh, you know. To impact uh, upon you that way? Yeah. Well, I think it's cumulative, isn't it? I mean. Yes, it is cumulative, you, right. When you first see things, it's brand new and it's the new world and you're just kind of looking and, you know, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. but then as it gets closer and closer and, uh, you know, I think it builds on you. So, Well, it does. 11 years is a long time, but I, I hold the opinion that whether you spend one day locked up in a cage or 45 years, it has the same impact. You know, some people well, can spend one day and never get over it. It depends how much of an internal world you have inside your head. It does. You see, I think a lot of guys that go to prison don't have much of an internal world in their head. Mm. It's, they live on the outside. The outside is where they are. And so being mm. in prison is a terrible, it's a torture for them. It's, a, it's really hard. It's impacting mm-hmm. on them. Mm-hmm. But if you've got an, in, an internal world in your head where you can go, where you can read books, where you can think about things, where you can, mm. I think you've got a place that is yours and it doesn't have that same uh, effect as it does some other people. I agree with you, but that's a, that's a rare situation. You know, you, on the surface, it all looks the same. You know, everybody's looking for books to read. Everybody's looking for to play cards or to play dominoes. And oftentimes they'll do that. You know, back in the day that we're talking about, everybody was single cell. Yeah. So, you know, you didn't have a celly in there that you could play cards with or otherwise. So you had people who played chess games on the tier, you know, and you could hear people calling out the numbers for the chess moves, you know, relative to that, you know, eventually they gave us um, those uh, eight uh, track players, you know, where you could uh, listen to music. And, you know, then that became an issue. Um, 
insofar as the loudness of that. But, um, you know, some people use those mechanisms, whether it's books or music or art. A lot of people became artists, amazing artists, you know, associated with that because that's how they use their time. So that was their that was their comfort zone. That was their safe place relative to that. But the very idea of being locked in that cage, you know, day in and day out, I think impacts upon every human being to some degree. I don't think well, any of us. Well, I got to say, it makes it so that I don't mind living in small places. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Man, I, I hear you. I don't, I don't need a big yeah. house. Right? Yeah. Actually, I don't want a big house. You see, it, it's too much space to take in. Yeah. You know, I could walk out onto the adjustment center, for instance, in San Quentin or the, the, the whole yard in Old Folsom. And, you know, the mind develops a virtual reality. Once you step out there and you take everything in, you know where everything's at. So the brain doesn't have to do that again. So interestingly enough, when you walk out there the next time, if anything's out of place, you yeah. see it immediately. Yeah. You see, and that's true, whether you're walking the tear or otherwise. Do you remember they made a movie at, uh, at uh, Old Folsom called Lickety Split, I think it was, or something like that. About Jericho a guy running. Mile. Yeah, Jericho that's Mile. It. Miracle Mile, that's it. They called Jericho. the fellow Jericho yeah. Mile. That's it. That's yeah. right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Were you there when they did that? Mm -hmm. Because yeah. my, a friend of mine who was up, Phil Thompson, he was up at, at old, old Folsom. He said the yard's so small, there's just no way you could film anybody running a mile there. So I was mm -hmm. curious about that. Well, they actually built a track. It was one of the things that the production company had to con, um, concede to, that if they wanted to film this movie in Old Folsom, that they actually had to build a track for them to run on. And they did. And so, you know, the blessing in that, if you will, was that a track came to Old Folsom, and then the prisoners were able to start using that as any other person would use it for a track to run it. Most people just walked it. So you had, um, you know, people walking the track um, every day, and that's how they got their exercise. But that was called the Jericho Mile. Yeah, I remember that when it came up, that was, uh, mm -hmm. and of course, it was popular with us because the white boy was, was uh, winning the races, right? <laughs> That's always the case, yeah, you know, is, is when you look at that. But you want to remember that uh, the blacks argued that it was a long-distance race as opposed to a sprint and that they were better sprinters, and that's true. Yeah. yeah. You know, they are. And, um, but, yeah, it, it's, it's interesting when you get into the, the subtleties of uh, prison and the prison environment and the politics associated with that, and the competitiveness. You know, I think today that if, we, if we'd had more cooperation as opposed to competitiveness, you know, where things might be, where they might stand, what that might have done to impact upon the uh, implosion of uh, the prison industry. Um, because everything that we as prisoners were doing back then was actually feeding into what uh, the guards union wanted uh, exactly. By way of job, exactly. way of job security. So I mean, basically, you were yeah. saying you're mad dogs, right? and you need yeah. to be treated like mad dogs, and there was nothing yeah. else to do. I mean, I, yeah. I saw the difference because after my second shootout, I ended up in the Canadian maximum. Uh, and Canada is completely different. There's, yeah. no, there's no racial action going on at all. Right. Yeah. And if there's any kind of feeling of solidarity, it's the prisoners against the guards. Right. And that's the way it should be. Yes. You know, if you're going to have solidarity, you know, the guards take the position even to this day, um, us against them. And you see that primarily in, in law enforcement in general. 
you know, I'm dealing with that right now in this current case that I'm, I'm, I'm facing is that the idea that, you know, because of my history, former leader of the Aryan Brotherhood, they want a feather in their cap. And uh, so that's that us against them. They're not looking at the work that I'm doing or anything else by way of my, my nonprofit or my service to other people. They're looking at the fact of my history, that I come well, from a very violent background. Go ahead. You mentioned, you mentioned uh, in the, uh, before about the, uh, the Black Panthers. Yeah. And I seem to remember that some of the Black Panthers finally got out. Yeah. But e each guy that got out, well, Flea to Drumgo and some of the other ones, mm -hmm. just mysteriously ended up getting killed somewhere in the street. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I really don't think it was all that mysterious. It, um, the problem with that is um, it's what I call that big man on campus syndrome. So that an individual goes to the joint and he does time and then he gets out and he thinks he's all that in a bag of chips. And um, those that are out there on the street aren't seeing it that way. This guy thinks that he has certain things coming because he did time in the joint, particularly in San Quentin. Right. Poor old Folsom. But the people on the street who have been engaged in the struggle, you know, relative to their manifesto, I don't see it that way. And so oftentimes they would just eliminate the problem um, because that was the most um, expeditious way to deal with it was just to, to remove them. And uh, that happened to the vast majority of them. And um, I saw that um, time and time again. Um, and I understood it for what it was, you know, but it goes, it goes to the idea of, um, Really today, uh, with the work that I'm doing, and so far as preparing anybody uh, to be released from prison and come back out into society, and um, man, that's a that's a large order right there. You know, the idea of preparing people to do that because they're not prepared. I wasn't prepared. I sure as hell wasn't prepared after 45 years. Thought I was, but I wasn't. Well, I mean, when I got out. It was the determinate sentence law that just suddenly brought in a law right. giving people actual mm -hmm. time as opposed to these five to right. life sentences. Mm -hmm. yeah. And so whole sheets of people were just released onto the street, yeah. Yeah. which were, led were to... Were you going to five to life? Yeah, five to life. Two five to lives. Yeah, yeah run consecutive, yeah. I mean concurrent. Well, I remember when that happened because I was in San Quentin when that happened and I was on the um, west side, captain's porch, lower tier there in the adjustment center. And... Um, when they enacted that law, I remember them walking in down the tier and they walked down the tier and they just pointed to each cell and they said, pack your stuff, pack your stuff, pack your stuff. And they opened the doors for over 400 prisoners that day and released them. They walked out the front gate of San Quentin. Right. You know, they had no idea this was going to happen. You know, some of them, they'd say, pack your stuff. And they say, what's going on? They said, we're going to release you. He said, the hell with my stuff. Open the door. You know, they left everything behind. They didn't want any of it. They wanted out. And um, actually, I enjoyed that day, seeing that happen. Um, yeah, well, that it was magic because all, all kinds of yeah. people. It was yeah. like the people you knew from the tears. Suddenly, there you were out in the street with them. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Because I remember I was, I think, one, I know it was myself and maybe one other individual was left on the entire tier. And, and you know, all these doors are open and. And uh, it's like, are you kidding? But, you know, I could look out the window and see them being taken out. And they'd walk by the captain's porch and then through the front entrance. You'd think they'd have to be uh, processed out through R&R, &R, but that wasn't the case. They walked right out. It's just too many of them. 
Well, I, I guess the, the guys in, in the adjustment center there would be, they'd be the ones who'd be doing 15 years on Five to Life or 10 yeah. years mm-hmm. and because of yeah. bad acting inside. Mm-hmm. And so when that came in, of course, they'd be due for release, wouldn't they? Right. Yeah. yeah, and that's what happened. So what that left you with was it left you with uh, the determinate term as it related to everybody else. But those of us that were doing Seven to Life, um, which was the maximum in that life, you had One to Life, Five to Life, Seven to Life. And I was a seven to life. So those of us that were doing seven to life still had to go before the board of prison terms, but that eliminated the five to life like yourself and the one to life. So they came under the determinant term and were released. They did a set term. Everybody else had to go before the board. And um, I I went before the board um, 19 times total, the 19th time they released me, but uh, the 18 previous times uh, were, were hell on wheels. Um, just I'm sitting here right now trying to remember the warden back then. Um, and it doesn't come to mind, but he eventually became chairman of the board. And um, he was he was tough. He was tough. I mean, he used to do what we used to do is they'd set up a board hearing for us and we'd go right the other side of the captain's porch there into a hearing room and the board would be sitting there. And the vast majority of us, you know, you had your ID card. And so we just walk in and we toss our ID card on the table and turn around and walk out because we knew we had nothing coming, you know, you know, but um, the one exception when they changed that was there was um, a youngster. I can't remember his name right now either. I guess too many blows to the head in so far as my memory, but uh, he went into the board here and there in San Quentin and he went over the desk. He went over the table on the board members and stabbed her. And um, so that kind of changed how we then went before the board. But um, yeah, a lot of things changed as a result of what was happening um, in San Quentin. Yeah, well, I I consider myself really lucky because I look at you and Mm. there could just as easily be me sitting there doing 45 years, you know? Yes. If things have gone gone this way instead of that way. Yeah, and it's 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 not a subtle distinction because you're absolutely correct. I mean, just one incident could have altered the entire course of your incarceration, where you were spending the rest of your life in prison. Yeah, and and it didn't take much, so you had to well, be on your toes, and obviously you were. There was a there was a famous. Do you remember there was a fellow Napoleon, and he used to say, he said, "I don't care if a general's brave, and I don't care if he's smart. Just give me one who's lucky." <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm not so sure that I believe in, in luck. Um, I mean, I guess it depends on the context. Um, but. Uh, well, you, you can help me with explaining one of this, what, what we're talking about right now. Okay. It, in my first, first podcast, I talked about this AB member who confronted me when I was at Sierra Conservation Center. Oh, yeah. I called him Stormer, but that wasn't his name. I don't, I don't know what his name is. But you might be able to put a name to this fella because mm-hmm. he had a swastika right here on his cheekbone, mm-hmm. and he'd been the either light heavyweight champion or middleweight champion boxer at Vacaville, and he hmm. just taken these black guys to pieces boxing in the ring. Mm-hmm. So I was wondering if you knew what his name was. Huh? You know the heavyweight champion at San Quentin at that time was Spotsburg, and um, Spots had. Um, I don't remember a swastika on his cheek, 
But um, he had a flat nose, you know, broken in the ring. And um, he had hands. He had hands. I mean, he could go from the shoulder. And um, he's the only one I know of in that context. Stormer doesn't ring a bell. Well, no, I made I, I made the name up because I couldn't remember what his oh, name was. Well, I just made it up. Me, yeah, it sounds to me like it was probably Spots. And uh, like I said, Spots was um, a light heavyweight and uh, eventually took the heavyweight title um, there at San Quentin. And he was brand. Um, and um, Bobby Moore was a boxer, too. Um, I did some boxing in my early years. Um, Were they ever at uh, Vacaville? Oh, yeah. On the yeah. main line? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, well, then it was one of them because they ended up at the Sierra Conservation Center and they had this drama. And that's one of those spots where I got lucky because he just didn't decide to, to continue it. You know, mm-hmm. he, he gave me a break, as you might say. <laughs> What's well, good. Yeah, I mean, I'm sure there was a good reason for that. I mean, it, it's, it's um, it, it, you know, hindsight, um, I suppose, can be valuable. But what you really have to go with are the circumstances at the time and how you assess that. And um, it's what I tell people all the time, you know, in telling stories is that um, if you were there, then weigh in, you know, if you weren't, you know, then, you know, spare me all your jaw jaw jacking, Um, you know, because what you're really talking about is your experience and the limits of that experience. Um, And so, you know, that you had that experience and it sounds like it was probably spots. And um, like I said, he could go from the shoulder. And, and oh no! Did. This, this fella, this fella, his arms were just his arms and his fists were like scarred and thick and heavy. Mm-hmm. I mean, I just thought to myself, if I got to go with this guy, this is going to be harsh. <laughs> I'll just, I'll just tell you that it would have been difficult because I've gone with spots. I've fought, fought uh, spots, um, as well as other members like TD, and we used to do it for exercise. Um, you know, we just um, sometimes, like at Old Folsom, they would let us out on the tier uh, just so we could fight. And, uh, and we did, and we were fighting each other. I mean, um, but it was good exercise and we enjoyed it, but spots had uh, real heavy scar tissue over both our eyes. And um, like you said, scarred hands. And, um, you know, he preferred um, bare fisted as opposed yeah. to gloves or anything like that. And um, you might occasionally see him wrap his hands um, to keep from busting them up. And because after a while, that's what happens is that, you get what are called boxer breaks. And um, I have a number myself. But, um, you know, my style was more along the lines of martial arts. But I still boxed anyway and enjoyed it. Um, and, um, you know, it has value. It has value, particularly in that environment. But um, Well, you don't have to go looking for a weapon if you're a good boxer, right? So. Well, you wouldn't think. It depends. You know, I've gone up against many opponents that had a weapon and I didn't. And um, so the key there is based on your skill set is to be able to take that weapon away from them. You know, the last time I had to do that, I got my ear cut off and the back of my throat cut. Um, you know, fortunately, um, there was a surgeon who had just developed a technique to reattach the ear. And so he reattached it for me, but it was cut right in half. And then back of my throat but um yeah so that was a situation where i took the weapon away but i didn't have a weapon myself and uh, in earlier years i had also done that uh, 
I had, uh, matter of fact, um, another brand member attempted to um, stab me, um, actually assassinate me uh, on the tier, uh, but I caught him and um, put him down and uh, he begged for his life and I gave it, uh, but not without tattooing um, a um, reminder around his heart. Well, you were moving with a different circle than I was. You yeah. know? I was mm -hmm. trying to avoid trouble. You see, in mm -hmm. life, if, if, you, if you go looking for trouble, you'll find it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah, it's pretty easy. You know, there's always somebody there that will take you up on it, mm. uh, depending on the circumstances. And, you know, that's the idea of, of um, competition. You see, what you're really talking about is that you sought to cooperate, you know, towards your own aims, your own goals, to do your own time and to stay out of the mix. And that was extremely intelligent on your part. You know, I, on the other hand, um, was in the mix. And um, so the dynamic there is a little bit different, um, a lot more violent. And uh, when a challenge comes, you you meet that challenge or you perish. Well, and, I mean, th think about it. Hmm. Going up against a guy with a knife in the adjustment center yard. And then having mm -hmm. the gunner shooting also. I mean, and that's, that's more extreme than the Roman gladiatorial games. Mm -hmm. I mean, in Rome, yeah. that would be like if the audience could shoot at you with bows and arrows at the same time as you're fighting with your opponent. I mean, it's just absolute madness. It is. <laughs> it just, it's, it's one of the factors that you take into consideration because, like I said, the gunner was just 12 feet off the ground. So he was going to start with a shotgun, but depending. I mean, if you, if you had knives and you were doing your dance, then, you know, the M14 immediately came out. And the only way you were going to survive that was by moving and, and well, literally. I mean, aside from anything else, if you get the wrong gunner, if you get a guy that just doesn't like you, then you're mm. done. You know, there was yeah. one gunner shot down three blacks in the adjustment center, killed him dead. Right. Yeah. And mm -hmm. obviously that, that's what he'd been planning to do for a while. Yeah. And he did it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I've seen it. But I mean, you know, back at the time that we're talking about, uh, their hiring practices weren't all that great. They were just moving into the guards union. So I remember uh, one of the lieutenants pointing to a cat that was up on the, uh, on, on the rail. And uh, he said, you see that guy up there? And I said, yeah, I said, he was standing outside the liquor store in Oakland six months ago. Now he's a guard. He had one cat who had been, um, who had been beaten by an individual um, in the joint there at San Quentin. And he paroled, became a correctional officer, and came back and was up on the gun rail and saw the guy that had beaten him and capped him. So he used that license as a guard coming full cycle. You know, they, they then began to um, institute a, a more stringent, stringent um, um, vetting system uh, because of that. But, I mean, think about it. You know, this guy got the hell beat out of him, paroled. Joined the Department of Corrections, became a guard, went to work at San Quentin, went up on the gun rail, and got his vengeance. Yeah, um, yeah. and he's got a he's got a license to do it. I mean, he doesn't have to right. explain no. anything. No, he doesn't, there, and, and there, didn't. There was no there was no leeway. You start you start any ruckus on the upper yard, but they mm -hmm. people start shooting. That's it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But you know, again, going back to our era, um, you know, they didn't have uh, the alarm system that they have now they had whistles and they all wore whistles. So, you know, the key there was that I would acquire whistles and I would have somebody go down to the lower yard and start blowing their whistle. Like it was a guard that would pull all the guards down there. Then I would handle my business up here. See, that's when you really had time to be in a knife fight. You see, 
because you pulled all their resources down there because they thought something was going on because all these whistles were blowing. You know, then eventually they got a, they got rid of the whistle, although they continued to carry the whistle for years. But then they started with the walkie talkies. And and so they had radios that they could call each other on and then started wearing the, the mic up on their shoulder so that they could connect to each other. And um, in, in San Quinn, no, there was so many there's so many shadowy stairwells and side views and mm-hmm. down tiers. And there was all kinds of blind spots all over the place. And, yeah. You know, the guards, I don't even think they seriously bothered. That guy would just sit up, up on the gun rail with some comic book and, uh, you know, whatever was going on was going on, you know. Yeah, I've seen it happen. Yeah. They used to take the attitude that um, they contained the perimeter. In other words, their priority was to protect the public, so you couldn't escape. But when went on inside the prison, they very rarely had anything to do with that. You know, if they were compelled uh, through uh, just the sheer necessity of a circumstance like a riot to start um, busting caps, then they would. Um, But typically, if there was a knife fight, unless it was in the adjustment center or up on the shelf, um, you know, they let happen what was going to happen. And um, because they knew the outcome and and interestingly enough, really didn't want to get involved, you know, because that might bring pressure on them. Well, it's paperwork. I mean, you got to do the paperwork if you're in any way involved. There's that that too. Yeah. But you had a lot of, you had a lot of guards that uh, joined the brand, for instance. So we had guards that worked for us. You know, the blacks had guards that worked for them. I mean, that's how they took over the adjustment center is that, um, you know, the guards in the adjustment center, the black guards, um, you know, in cooperation with uh, George Jackson and and, and, uh, Yogi Pinnell and others. But um, so, you know, there's a much, much different time. And, um, you know, I don't know if you were there when they first started allow uh, women to work at San Quentin. I don't remember um, any women. I think. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I remember, too, when they first brought them. And I remember um, I remember a, 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 a lieutenant, a female lieutenant came by and tried to get me to check into PC because mm-hmm. the Black Gorilla family tried to stab me in the library. Mm-hmm. And she was going on about how I really wanted to check into PC. And I was saying, I really don't want to check into PC. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But that was her obligation. I mean, she had to do that. And I probably know her or knew her. If it's the woman I'm thinking of, uh, given the time that we're talking about, she was one of the few women that worked the joint. And she eventually became the um, director of corrections. Oh, really? And, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. She... um she married a um, a captain there at San Quentin and um, uh, went on to become quite successful. Um, tough gal, too. Tough well, you'd gal. have to be. You'd have to yeah. be. Yeah. I'm trying to, again, I'm, I'm trying to remember names and it's not happening for me. So somewhere in this data bank I call a brain, uh, these memories are somewhat scattered. I suppose given time, I could... Um, I don't know that their names are important. I mean, we both know who we're talking about as you know, the audience may not, but I don't know that that's relevant, you know, that they need a name associated with that. I think it's just, um, well, I mean, your memory, your memory filters stuff out. I mean, it's filtering Mm -hmm. all the time. So Mm -hmm. if it's not essential, for example, uh, for me, I remember, I don't remember names very well over years, you know, years pass by that names pass by. But I can remember violence. I can remember what happened almost blow by blow. 
So mm-hmm. it must be something instinctual. That I think so, yeah. You remember violence because it impacts on your survival like an mm-hmm. animal. Yeah. So it, it's, it teaches you something. It should mm-hmm. teach you. Each, each mm-hmm. incident should be teaching you something. It's a characteristic of adaptation. All animals use it. You know, it's, you know, people misquote Darwin all the time insofar as, you know, the strongest will survive. It's not that at all. What he said was is that species that is best able to adapt to its environment will survive. So it's really a matter of adaptation. Yep. And, um, and that's what you're talking about, is adaptation, to adapt to that, to take in, you know, what you've observed for the purposes of adapting to that and not getting in a wreck yourself. Hope you're enjoying the podcast. There's a word from our sponsor, Rocket Money, formerly Truebill. If you're missing your credit card payments or you need to make a budget, you need our favorite financial app, Rocket Money, formerly Truebill. So why did Truebill change its name to Rocket Money? I'll tell you what I heard. Truebill, now backed by Rocket Companies, has grown from a bill management app into a full-on personal finance empowerment tool that helps over 3.4 million people with budgeting, lowering bills, cancelling subscriptions, and more, saving each of their members on average $700 a year. And with all that growth comes the next evolution in Truebill's story, a new name. Bottom line, rocket money is everything I've loved about Truebill, but with a fresh look and feel. Start cancelling your unused subscriptions and save money at rocketmoney.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. That's rocketmoney.com forward slash Sean, S-H-A-U-N. Or download the app from the Apple App Store or Google Play Store. Thank you for supporting our sponsor, Rocket Money. Link will be in the description box if you're watching on YouTube. Um, And that's important to your survival because prison is about survival. Um, well, it was particularly important for me because I started out as like uh, a, a college kid nerd and then it ended up in mm-hmm. California in CDC. So mm-hmm. when you talk adaptation, <laughs> it was, it was yeah. a serious process. Yeah, I get it. I was new to the system myself. I mean, you'll recognize the term. I was a fish and a real fish, you see. And people used to be on fish status the first five years. You were considered a fish. In other words, you knew nothing about the prison system. So, you know, my learning curve was a little bit steeper than that because of the altercations that I got involved in. And, um, you know, those were choices that I made. You know, nobody made those choices for me, but they had um, they had immediate consequences. And so far as uh, once you were perceived as the enemy and then you were pursued as the enemy. Well, one thing that sort of surprises me about your case mm-hmm. is you know, when I, when I was reading about you, it mentioned mm-hmm. that you, you testified against the AB here and there, and you've mm-hmm. been in protection. Mm-hmm. And, but you still did 45 years. And I thought to myself, mm-hmm. this doesn't make any sense, because usually, if a guy goes into protection and, and testifies, then mm-hmm. there's, there's some sentence reduction, there's some breaks, mm-hmm. but you didn't get mm-hmm. any breaks at all. You just did the full nine yards, right? That's not my get down. I didn't do what I did to receive anything for it. You know, it, um, I really wasn't even put in protective custody. Um, what they did was they moved me to a special unit, restricted housing unit in Tehachapi. It was the only one of its kind. And it was run by the SSU, Special Services Unit. And it was controlled by the warden. 
And um, so they selected, they hand-selected their guards. There were only six of us in there, and we were all former gang leaders. Um, but the issue was is that I was subjected to probably more violence once I stepped away from the brand than I'd ever been subjected to while I was with the brand. And that was at the hands of the guards and uh, those individuals that I was testifying against. You know, I took a stand for something that I would not condone the killing of children, the killing of women, the killing of parents. And um, I went into court and uh, testified to that effect um, against the brand, against the Hells Angels, against the Mexican Mafia, and on and on. Um, and I did so to take that stand. I didn't ask for anything. I didn't want anything. Um, you weren't you know, offered any any sort of sentence reductions or changes? I wouldn't allow it. No, I wouldn't allow it. That's not why I did it. You see, it, it, w the idea wasn't to to remove myself from prison or to receive favor or special housing. The conditions I lived in after that were far more severe than anything that I had encountered, including the dungeon, dungeon at Old Folsom. Um, it... Um, it's it's kind of um, I guess from my perspective an interesting story, but um, no, I I did what I did because I believed it was the right thing to do. I'd been serving two truths, um, as my elders would say, I was serving two fires, and you can't serve two fires. So I had to choose, and I chose. Um, but in choosing, because I'd been a leader of the Aryan Brotherhood and was responsible for developing its infrastructure, now that they were taking this course to kill innocent people. I had to take a position that was contrary to that by educating the public about it and by going into court and testifying as to the effects of it. So this um, was before the deprogramming uh, system started? Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. None, none of that existed. You know, the debriefing and all that. That's it, debriefing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, debriefing came later. Um, well, could could you explain that for everybody? Because I don't think most people understand what that means. Yeah, what they do is if you're a gang member and you want to remove yourself from the gang, then you have to what's called debrief. So when you when you come away from it, uh, they bring intelligence officers in and you have to give them everything that you have relative to the gang, your involvement, your activities, what you know about the gang, and so on. And so that debriefing process then entitles you to be placed um, in, in a custody that uh, is no longer associated with gangs. So the gangs can't get uh, like you, what you call protective custody. You know, there really is only one protective custody unit in the state of California, and that's at Corcoran. Um, and uh, there was only a handful of individuals. Now, I was there for 10 years. And I was there with Charlie Manson and Sirhan Sirhan and Juan Corona and uh, just very few of us but uh, high notoriety cases. Um, but, um, you know, it was anything really um, but protective custody. I mean, I underwent some of the worst beatings I've ever incurred in my life in that unit at the hands of staff um, because they were killing uh, prisoners and um, I took issue with it. So they anticipated that I was going to testify against them. So. Is that the, the, the case they called the Cowboys, or is that a different one? That's the Sharks. Uh, and sharks. It, it is, yeah, the Cowboys, Sharks, but typically it was the Green Wall, and that was at Corcoran, and what it was was the development of a prisoner's uh, guards gang. Um, so what happened was the guards formed their own gang, 
and uh, they called themselves the Sharks. So they it was gladiator school. They would put opponents out on the yard together, and when they started fighting, they would shoot them and kill them. Yeah. And after eight killings that way, and in one of them I was very familiar with because I was a clerk, captain's clerk, on that yard, and um, working out of of, um, of the shoe unit that I was in. So um, they came to me. Uh, like two hours before this incident even occurred with the central files of the individuals that were going to be involved and had me write a report saying that this individual was shot in the head. He hadn't been shot in the head yet. But ultimately, two hours later, he was shot in the head. So I took that to a lieutenant. And that's where this idea of the Cowboys or the Sharks and the Green Wall came up because there was a Senate Select Committee investigation over that. And this well, there, was a guy, there was a guy I knew called Willie Wisely who uh, he's in Southern California, somewhere locked up. He's been there for yeah. 30 years now, but mm-hmm. he wrote up a lot of artists, some articles about those kind of cases for that prison yeah. network uh, yeah. website. Yeah. And so Sean, if you want to read up on that, then the name Willie Wisely prison network, and the, you'll come across those cases. Well, if you really want to get deeper into it, there's a, um, a transcript that is available to the public uh, on those Senate hearings where it, uh, there was a Department of Justice investigation into the murder of inmates and prisoners uh, at Corcoran and the, um, the guards and the administrators that were involved in that. Now, two of the administrators involved in that, setting that up and facilitating that were Hell's Angels. And, um, so, you know, they got involved in, in fact, the Hell's Angel case that I was testifying in up in Oregon, where they killed Margot Compton and her two six-year-old twin daughters and her boyfriend. And they, t- they attempted to prevent me from testifying in that. And um, one, was a, um, one was an associate warden and one was a captain. And so, Ooh. yeah, it made it very difficult to live. So, you know, when you say protective custody, not really. Um, not really. So you'll see that in those transcripts before the Senate Select Committee. Um, oh, she's now a United States uh, senator or congressperson. What was her name? Well, see, there I go again. But at any rate, uh, she was the chairman of that committee. And when the lieutenant I'm talking about, his name was Stephen Rigg, uh, came in to testify before the Senate Select Committee. He was wearing a bulletproof vest. And so she stopped the proceedings and she said, uh, um, Mr. Rigg, are you wearing a bulletproof vest? And he said, yes, ma'am, I am. And she said, may I ask why? And he said, because my fellow guards have already done a drive-by shooting on my home and I fear for my life. So that's how intense this was um, at Corcoran at the time. There are... um, a lot of stories that go along with that. I mean, I just finished 10 chapters of my book and it deals with my time with the brand. And then the second 10 chapters is going to be the, the very thing I'm talking about now, what it was like to step away. And um, I was not only dealing with the gangs who wanted me dead, but officers and administrators who wanted me dead because they were corrupt. And I'd been working with them in my capacity as a leader of the Aryan Brotherhood um, as corrupt administrators. So now, you know, I'm giving this information to the FBI and the Department of Justice, and they're being brought um, under the gun, so to speak. 
And, uh, but that's an entirely different story. <laughs> well, you're lucky to be, to be still breathing as well. <laughs> you know, uh, yeah, you're right. I am. Um, but it's like you mentioned earlier, just as you adapted to your circumstances to survive, uh, so have I. You know, there are a lot of restrictions that uh, come with my life right now as a result of what I continue to do with law enforcement and otherwise. I mean, the conviction that was had out of that case in Oregon that I was talking about against the Hells Angels, I mean, I'm still receiving heat. You know, a lot of the haters that, for instance, I have on the Internet um, come from that. They're like the vanguard um, for those individuals who are still incarcerated. Federal investigators just came and saw me recently about that. They're attempting to get out. So there are still people who are attempting to discredit me. Well, uh, because when you that. mentioned that there's a fellow named Mitch. I don't know what his, his last yeah. name is, mm-hmm. yeah. but he's he he seriously spends his time trying to trash you. And he also says he wasn't Tracy with you. Well, is there wasn't. any truth to that? No, no, Mitch wasn't in Tracy with me. Um, Mitch isn't wasn't anywhere with me. What he was was that he was in a joint. Um, he was in San Quentin and he was an old Folsom, but he did time with one of the individuals that was responsible for the death of Margot Compton and her two six year old daughters. And so since they're still trying to get out of prison, he's trashing me um, to discredit me. And he really hasn't discredited me at all. I mean, everything I've ever done is a documented fact. So he hasn't come forth with anything other than people say, oh, I was there with him and that didn't happen. Um, No, he wasn't there with me. Uh, Somebody else that contacted him was there with me. But here's the bottom line to that. Um, You know, I have my write-up for the things that I talk about. So his source... All he has to do is come forth with his write-up that shows that he was there that day and that he was involved in this and so that he knows what he's talking about. You see, but he's not going to do that. What he's going to do instead is he's going to continue to trash me because his friend, who's doing a life sentence, four life sentences in Oregon for the killing of these two little six-year-old girls and her mother and her boyfriend, wants out. So he's acting as the vanguard to discredit me. Say, oh, he's a liar. He's this. He's that. You know, I normally uh, don't take issue with these things, but since you brought it up, uh, I just addressed it. But well, no, I mean, I fair yeah, enough. I don't, I don't normally give him the time. Basically, yeah. context is important. I mean, if it you is, don't have yeah. the context, then yeah. what, what, what do you know about the real situation? Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. But I mean, he's he's a biker and I get it. And so he's a part of that community. And he wants his friend who's up there doing four life sentences for this murder. Uh, he wants to help him get out. Um, so he wants to discredit me to facilitate that. And, and I understand it. I get it. You see, but that doesn't make what he's doing um, at all credible. But so all people have to do is look at the facts. Real John, simply, look at the facts. John, I'm curious. When mm-hmm. did you first hear about Mike? Did I first hear about him? Yeah, because a lot of people say, you know, he's, all this is made up and stuff, but you were there in the same prison. You weren't in the mix. You were trying to survive the mix. What did you hear about Mike in the beginning? Well, I, I can't say. I didn't, I didn't want to be involved in the AB or what they were doing at all, so I wasn't interested. So I can't say I recognized the name. I mean, of course, everybody recognizes T.D. Bingham's name and the Baron yeah. and some of these mm-hmm. fellows, but they mm-hmm. were like mythological figures because they weren't on the line we didn't see them but we heard about it yeah now 
the guy I knew who was closest to it would be Doug Orr. Mm-hmm. And I knew him and he knew me and I wouldn't say we were friends, but he put up with me and, you know, and so whatever I knew, that would be where it would come from or from Phil Thompson. By the way, did you ever know Phil Thompson? I don't think so. I don't, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, you know, my handle back then was either Big Mike or Iron Mike. Because um, uh, Phil, Phil was at uh, Old Folsom and San Quentin and there and here and there mm-hmm. and all over the mm-hmm. place. Mm-hmm. Anyway, if you didn't run into him, you didn't run into him. Like you said, there's 170,000 people. Yeah, <laughs> but a- it's, it's, see, you know, the one thing that you do know is that when you're involved in a knife fight or anything, it's a 115 process. It's a disciplinary report. Do you remember those? Yep. And, yeah, they write yeah. an eight, and they write an 837 incident report. See, and that's all documented. So, you know, what I tell people is if you want to know about these things, if you want to confirm, then access the record. It's public knowledge, public information. See, and all that information is available by way of verification. What I take issue with are these cats that jack their jaws, you see, simply because it brings in subscribers or they create controversy and that controversy brings people to their site um, when they really don't even know what they're talking about. They don't like the fact that I've cooperated with law enforcement and that's their prerogative. I get that. You see, and I don't take issue with that. But Well, I got to say this. I mean, there's, you, were, you went to court, but if mm-hmm. you had to get all the prisoners who informed on their fellow convicts or who were slipping mm-hmm. messages to the, to the custody <laughs> lieutenant mm-hmm. or, you know, basically the custody lieutenants knew exactly what was going on everywhere because mm-hmm. guys were telling mm-hmm. them. Yeah. And so uh, my, my sense of the solidarity of, between the convicts, uh, <laughs> slim and none, basically. Yeah. So. No, really what we share is the idea that, uh, you know, we were at San Quentin together, um, you know, so that in that context, we have um, an idea of what we're both talking about um, insofar as the infrastructure of the prison itself, what the get down was, you know, relative to violence, staying out of the mix, being in the mix, and so on. Well, if you're in the world, you're in the world. And if you're not mm-hmm. in the world, then you're from some other place, right? Yeah. <laughs> it, it it you know that sounds a bit abstract but it's actually true you know it really is and i've heard that term used before uh, not particularly in this context but it has application you know and the idea of having done time of having been a convict as opposed to an inmate um there's a distinction there and i know you understand the distinction so it's doing time um in a prison at a time when it was actually a prison um as opposed to just an institution or a warehouse. What you have now are warehouses. And, um, you know, the control that's imposed upon them um, through a paramilitary application of uh, law enforcement, including the guards, is vastly different than what you and I experienced uh, in San Quentin in the 70s. I mean, you're a B7 number, so you know what I'm talking about. Um, well, I, I never, I never had any beef with the guards. They, mm-hmm. as far as I was concerned, they did their job. They opened the, the gates, they shut the gates, they took you to chow, they brought you back. Yeah. I wasn't, I, I, mm-hmm. I didn't have any beef with them. I wasn't in their face. I wasn't throwing shit on them. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, they were just doing their jobs, and so yeah. I was happy with that. You're talking about the push and pull 
is on the ball and chalk. So the push and pull on the ball and chalk is the bull's on the walk. He's a turnkey. He's just doing his job. And, you know, that's what a lot of people don't understand about the situation. They're just human beings. The vast majority of the people, the guards that were there at San Quentin with us were Vietnam vets, you see, and all they were looking for was a job and a job that was uh, consumerate with their experience in being in Vietnam. And, and they had that. Well, there was a fellow, he took over the education office. His name was Mark Gale. I don't know if he was a guard or a supervisor, whatever he was. Mm-hmm. And he was a Vietnam vet. Mm-hmm. And he put it this way. He said, he said, I'm the officer and you're the enlisted men. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's a great way to look at it. It is. I mean, it's actually giving you something, yeah. you know, relative to that. I mean, he's not saying that we're on equal footing, but that, um, you know, we can't have a relationship. We can't communicate. And uh, we can be humane with one another. And I like individuals like that. And you had those. And no matter where I went, I, I always had the experience of running across individuals like that who were just human beings, just doing their job. And um, um, we're going to do what they were required to do to make sure that you got your issue. And a lot of people don't understand what your issue is. But your issue is, as you just pointed out, unlocking that door so that you can go to chow, or that you can gain access to the hospital you know, that you can go to the clinic, that you can go to the dentist office, and so on. And um, so, um, you know, I don't take issue with those individuals, never have had. Um, but, uh, yeah, it, it's, um, when you talk about prison in general, uh, from the perspective of the time that we were there, as opposed to now, you wouldn't recognize it. You, you simply would not recognize it. It's vastly different. And um, well, I'm, I'm, I'm very glad I didn't have to recognize it. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Mm. yeah. I've got so a question. I've got yeah. a question, Go I've got ahead, a question from something you said earlier, Mike. Um, yeah. you, so you said as an AB leader, you mm-hmm. orchestrated a plan to eliminate the neo Nazis, to wipe the neo Nazis out. Mm-hmm. Could you just give us a little bit more description as to how you implemented that and what challenges arose? It's not really a challenge. It's, it's um, knowing where the individuals are at and, um, you know, having given previous warning as to what they were doing, because you always did that because you didn't want to disrupt uh, the business on the yard. But um, everybody knew where everybody lived. So it was a matter of orchestrating um, time and place in so far as hitting them. And um, that was done. Uh, some of it was right out on the tier. Some of it, they had knives and we had knives. Others, they didn't. Uh, but the idea was to, um, as expeditiously as possible, remove them from the environment. And that was done. So they, uh, they, they it, didn't have a chance to regroup and, and strike back? No, you didn't allow that. And um, the idea, you want to remember that violence, particularly in San Quentin at that time, is currency. And your currency, uh, particularly with the brand, um, was at the forefront of everything that we did. And there was uh, compliance by everyone involved because of that. Because if you didn't comply, then you were uh, subjected to the, the threat of violence uh, to ensure that you did comply. And that's why I say that violence was your currency. So at the inception of the neo-Nazis, did you view them as something that down the road w- would become a problem? No, I can't say that I did. I mean, it, it would perhaps sound good if I said, oh, yeah, I knew this was going to be a problem, but I didn't. 
I never put much stock in uh, in what they had to say any more than I did uh, what the Black Panthers or the BGF had to say about communism. Um, you know, I'm an American, and uh, I've always thought of myself as an American, and um, so um, I didn't buy into the idea of um, you know the nationalism that goes along with uh, um, Nazism. Um, or communism, for that matter. But um, yeah, but so saying no. that, saying that, Mike. I mean, mm-hmm. think of all the guys that had Nazi swastikas on them, SS runes on their neck, and supreme white power on the forehead, and white <laughs> power down their back arms. I mean, yeah. it was everywhere. And you know, those guys were, you know, it, to use the Spanish expression, always talking about the. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> they were, and you're right. But see, you want to remember that's posturing. And, you know, that's fear-based, you see, bottom line. You know, these, these cats that uh, put these swastikas in this uh, SWP and uh, all over them, uh, that's posturing. You know, that's just like the bikers that have Harley Davidson and this and never, never straddled a bike in their life. You know, and it was, the true, it was true with these guys that you're talking about. They, they come to prison and they want a sense of belonging, so they're looking who they can uh, connect with relative to that. Uh, but they have to be able to meet muster. You see, they're not going to meet muster as it relates to the brand or one of the other gangs because they can't live up to that muster. So the issue is, is that they become kind of subsets. And that's what the neo-Nazis were, subsets. So you get these swastikas, and it's it's like a shield for them. You know, this idea that if they put a swastika on them, then others are going to perceive them, you know, as um, one of those individuals that if they mess with them, then they're going to be messed with back. And so it's posturing. And uh, nothing but posturing. And um, those individuals are a dime a dozen. Uh, you see them all over the place. You know, they've never busted a grape, never been in the trenches, never done a damn thing. But, you know, they'll talk out the side of their neck or they'll jack their jaws all day long about, um, you know, simply um, how tough they are or what's going to happen to people if they don't do this and they don't do that. But it's, it's, all, it's all bluff. Every bit of it's bluff. Well, those are my sentiments exactly. I felt that way right from the start. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's just, uh, you know, it's, it's difficult to be tolerant um, of that. But you have so many other things going on, to go back to Sean's question, um, that you, you don't really give a lot of credence to these individuals. Um, you know, they exist. They're not going to do anything that oversteps their boundaries, you see. But every once in a while, um, they get to fill in their oats because they're, they're given a little bit of freedom in the context of the prison that they're in. Now they think they're running something or, you know, maybe they're moving a little bit of product and they're doing so without um, um, any interference. So, you know, they get that big man on campus attitude. So now they're, they're beginning to dictate and they're trying to pull in and recruit individuals. And they think that through the, the power of numbers that they're really about something. And it's never been about numbers. Anybody that knows anything about the brand knows that to be a member of the brand, you had to be able to control by yourself. You know, you didn't have a guy next to you or to the left or the right of you. You went into a situation by yourself. And I've had many circumstances, myself and others, where that occurred. You walked right into a situation, a circle of men, and you got busy. You see? And that was the currency that I was talking about relative to violence. You controlled your circumstances by yourself. You did that through your physical prowess, and you did that through your 
your intellectual ability. Um, the only thing devoid of that, I should say, is emotional intelligence, because there is no emotional intelligence um, associated with uh, that type of currency, violence. Um, it's all straight up front. And um, what prevails, what rules in a situation like that is stoicism. And you stuff everything. You don't allow anything to touch you emotionally. Well, I, I take issue with you there because mm. basically my position is if you have to move straight to violence, mm -hmm. then the negotiating phase has failed. Mm -hmm. So you've got to bring your, what you call emotional intelligence to the negotiating phase. Mm -hmm. And things don't always have to go to violence. Mm -hmm. People can be persuaded other ways. And well, we're not in disagreement about that, John. See, I agree wholeheartedly with you about that, you see, but it, it's given the time and the circumstances. You know, uh, there's a time for negotiation. Should you choose to negotiate, you want to remember that anybody that you're negotiating with from a position of power, power based as a gang leader, that if you give them credence as it relates to negotiation, that means you're recognizing them. And so... I'll give you yeah. an example. Yeah. We, we decided... We had a fellow on the fifth tier. He was a black guy. Yeah. And his name was Goldie. And he was putting out speed to the blacks. But that wasn't working out well for him because the blacks yeah. way too sleazy. And they, he wasn't happy with it. So yeah. he made a deal with us. And so he gave us the speed and we sold it on the you know, East Block Bayside. Mm -hmm. Now, this is going right across uh, whatever racial lines there are. And I asked mm -hmm. Goldie, I said, how come you, you know, what are you doing dealing with us? And he says, well, I, wa I wants to get paid. <laughs> so as far as he was concerned, we would pay him. But dealing with his own race, he just never knew what was going to happen, right? Yeah. So, so that's business. And I understand it in that context. What you're really saying is money talks and bullshit walks. Yes, yes. That's what you're saying. That's the term we used to use back then. So that when it comes down to business and generating revenues and selling your product, then you're going to compromise however you need to compromise, you know, in that, in that context. You see? Well, so, I mean, yeah. so, some of the, some of the sort of white racists come up to us and says, you know, what are you doing putting out shit for the, for the blacks, blah, blah, mm -hmm. blah, you know, getting us the noise, but just call them out. You know, I said, here we are, here you are, this is it. You know, uh -huh. if, if, yeah. you don't, if you don't like it, jump. That's what you do. You see, you call their bluff because oftentimes what they're doing is they're attempting to push up on you because they want to, they want to cut. Yes. They want a part, yeah. they want to, they want a part of what you're, you're dealing with. You know, they want to generate their own revenues. So they're going to push up on you relative to that. And um, that's what that's about. Jeez, uh, hold on just a second. Yeah, go for it. I've, I've got um Another yeah, question right. about the neon. Well, Sean, you better say something here. You've been, you've been <laughs> all right. So for the viewers, for the viewers, then I've watched everything that Mike has done. I've watched all of Mike's interviews and I've heard all of Mike's stories from listening to all of Mike's interviews. And I'm, mm. I'm sitting here mesmerized. I've never heard <laughs> anything like what I'm hearing right now. This no. is co completely, completely new content, completely new stories. And it's a credit no. to John being here. But I do, I, I've got another question, Mike. I'm not yeah. going to let this neo-Nazi thing go. Because um, <laughs> the AB had a monopoly on the white boys. Yes. For the Nazis to form a gang then that eventually became a problem, would they have to ask permission 
from the AB to form that gang in the very beginning. If, in fact, they were a gang, that would be the case, and that wouldn't be allowed, you see. But the neo-Nazis were perceived, as, as many groups were perceived, uh, like the Sibonese Liberation Army, um, as a political group, you know, and, and that was their get-down um, and how they projected themselves. In other words, they had a manifesto. They had a doctrine. They had tenets associated with that, you know, just as the original Nazis did, just as Hitler did, um, you know, but... Uh, anybody that uh, takes half a second to look at Hitler understands him for the um, manipulator that he was. I mean, Hitler was the original jawjacker. So well, those particular question, guys, those particular guys came on the bus from Soledad after a race riot. So there mm-hmm. were about six or seven of them came at one time. So mm-hmm. they sort of landed on the line as mm-hmm. is, as like their mm-hmm. own little tip. Right. And so that would be probably the explanation for that. Sean. Yeah, and, and it explains it well. It does because it, it's circumstances is what it is. But they're not actually considered a gang um, until they uh, step outside the boundaries uh, that are permitted uh, within a, uh, a prison like San Quentin. When you step out from so- Soledad, and that was probably a result of you remember the Soledad Six, and so you know you had that circumstance. There was a guard was killed uh, by members of the BGF, and then you had a riot. And the, the whites that you're talking about came from Soledad. Nary a one of them busted a grape in any of that, you know. But because of their um, projection of being Nazis, um, they were transferred from Soledad to San Quentin and landed, like you said, there was about six of them. And um, but and then they continue that rhetoric um, as it relates to that, without understanding that that rhetoric won't be tolerated. They were warned, and they were given that warning. And they didn't heed that warning. Uh, so they suffered as a result. Well, I'm really glad to hear this because they certainly deserved it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. We're not in disagreement. You know, I, I, the thing is, is that what people need to understand, I suppose, about me is I don't have a racist bone in my body. Um, never have had. You know, um, those enemies that I had with the Black Panthers and the BGF were black, of course. Some were, some weren't. Yogi was uh, Nicaraguan. Um, you know, and back then the Aryan Brotherhood wasn't a white supremacist group. Uh, it was about controlling its resources and it was about protecting the white population. And, uh, that's what it did, um, you know, within that context, but also, um, it was a business and that's how it was perceived controlling your resources, the effective utilization of your resources. But, um, going back to your original question, Sean, the idea of, of the Nazis, no, they, they weren't given any quarter um, as the gang, nor nor would they be allowed to. Now, later on, you had the Nazi lowriders, and they were actually created as a vanguard for the brand. Um, in other words, to do the brand's bidding out in front of them so as not to intrude upon what was considered the nucleus of, of the brand um, by way of generating revenues or running a business. Um I, I don't know if that answers your question. Or yeah, not, w- 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 were there attempts then by whites to form gangs that the AB put down? There were a few. I mean, you had, that's twofold. You had individuals who would attempt to um, form gangs. I mean, you had gangs that were formed that uh, I think were named, uh, uh, you know, AB haters or something. But, um, you know, they they did not like being under the yoke if you will, of the AB. Um, so 
you know, when they were put upon, then they would be sent to other places and then they would attempt to organize. If the AB didn't have a a hand in that particular institution, because there were a lot of institutions that were developed as a result, then they pretty much had free reign and can do what they wanted to. Uh, it was only when they started moving AB members around, and so the, now they were able to be in these other institutions that they took over those institutions. And um, But even then, that's where the idea of shot caller comes from, is that uh, they would designate somebody a shot caller to put them out front of um, the brand itself. But the brand was in the background, um, essentially using them as puppets um, to control the, the the facility or the institution. You know, you've heard terms like keys to the car, shot collar, all this other stuff. That's where that comes from. They were given the keys to the car by a brand member. They were made a shot collar by a brand member uh, because you didn't have that many brand members. You got something on that, John? Well, I, I seem to remember this fella on the internet called Wes Watson. Is that his name? Kind of yeah. loud. And he's always <laughs> talking about being a shot caller and this and that. And uh, I, I haven't got much to comment. It's not my time, but um, mm -hmm. I was curious if that's what you're referring to, that sort of thing. That is what I'm referring to is that, uh, you know, I don't question that he was a shot caller. Um, more than likely he was. And um, more than likely did everything that he said he did. Um, I'm just pointing out where the term shot caller comes from and how a person would become a shot caller. Um, in other words, he's given, some people refer to it as having the keys to the yard. Um, so that when you don't have um, a brand member on the yard or in the institution in the whole, then they're taking direction from, at that time, probably Pelican Bay or the Tehachapi Shoe or the Corcoran Shoe, where you have a brand member who's um, using associates to control a yard. So he's sending word out, so-and-so's got the yard. He's got the keys to the yard. Sometimes uh, the whites would take it upon themselves to say, I got the keys to the yard. And then the only opposition they would meet there would be if somebody else wanted the keys to the yard. And I've heard stories to that effect. But um, insofar as uh, Watson, don't know him. And, um, and like I said, uh, he um, may have been a shot caller. Uh, I don't know. Like so I said, I don't know. So you're saying a shot caller is a front man then? He's not an actual member? No, he's not. Gotcha. No, you're not going to be called a shot caller if you're a member. So you know, it's I'm, the same relationship with the uh, Norteños, with the Nestors, and the Sereños with the Yeme? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you see that. Uh, they have more of a, a structure so that they have... Uh, you know, with the uh, Serenios, then they're linked to the Mexican Mafia. And then you got the Norteños who are linked with the Nuestra Familia. And so they're, they're like subsets of the same group. So the Nazi lowriders would be a subset of the Aryan Brotherhood, you know, a vanguard, if you will. And um, it's a control mechanism. The idea was to create a buffer system, um, particularly based on the RICO prosecutions that were coming up. You know, the Nuestra Familia was one of the first ones to get hit with uh, a RICO prosecution. You know, and then the brand got hit with a couple of them. The Mexican Mafia got hit with a couple of them. The Hells Angels got hit with them. So the attempt was to create buffer systems. Some... Excuse me for... Oh, hmm? go, on. go on, keep going. I thought you stopped. Keep going, sorry. No, no I, just, I was just making reference to the fact that these were subsets. So that... Uh, 
uh, law enforcement in general wouldn't have access to the nucleus of um, the group itself, whether that be the Aryan Brotherhood, the Mexican Mafia, the Nuestra Familia, and so on. So, so sometimes the vanguard can turn against its creator, as we've seen with the Mexican cartels. Yes. Did, did that happen with the Nazi lowriders? Yes, it did. Yes, it did. The problem is, is that, you know, it's an issue that I'd like to see addressed a lot more. Uh, the idea of the recruitment process and bringing people into these gangs. You know, these are individuals that are looking for a sense of belonging, family, if you will. And whatever the issues in their, in their life have been, they're looking to be wanted, loved, respected, and so on. So that psychology is used uh, by the gangs to recruit these people in. But the fact of the matter is they're recruited so that they can be used and they're expendable. Once they began to understand that they were being used and that they were expendable, then they turned on them. And so then that's when that's when the infighting started, you know, relative to that. And it's going on to this day. So um, what, what was the AB's initial response to that when they had turned? Well, I was no longer a member of the Aryan Brotherhood when that happened. So I can't really say what the Aryan Brotherhood's response to that was. It would be speculation and conjecture on my part. And I like to stay away from that. Um, you know, I talk about what I know, what my experiences are, and I talk from my experience. So it would be hypocritical of me to, to conjecture on that or to speculate on that, because that's what people do with me. Gotcha. They conjecture and they speculate based on their experience, which is very, very limited. So uh, that, that's why I don't go there with that. Yeah, that's a sensible approach, definitely. I, I think so. Yeah, but I think, um, I think Mike was asking you, John, about how your how your life is these days. Mm. How my life is these days? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I I like to travel, you know. <laughs> so that's something you should probably do, Mike. <laughs> well, you know, uh, right now I'm under house arrest. And um, I'm, on, I'm on parole. I'm on probation. I wear an ankle monitor. I'm denied access to the internet. Oh, I cannot travel. Oh, oh. I cannot oh. travel without permission. Um, I cannot leave my residence without permission. I live 500 miles away from my wife for her own safety. Um, so, um, you know, there are a lot of things going on with me, and, and travel is not one of them. At best, I have an 18 and a half foot uh, French Canadian canoe. Uh, I live next to a lake, so I can slide that canoe into the lake and I can paddle out. I can catch a few trout, bring them back in, pan fry them. Yesterday, I put up uh, the end of what was uh, 20 cords of wood, split it, stacked it. Um, you know, I live amongst the redwoods, uh, but it's my spirituality that keeps me connected. And, um, you know, you see my regalia behind me, and I use that every day. It's not a prop. Um, this is where I live. And... Um, Actually, Mike, I've got a book I want to recommend. I don't know. You probably know it already. Hmm. Uh, do, you, do you know the guy, George Catlin? Yes. This one? Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. Have you read yeah. this one? Great I don't know book. that I have. I, I know hey, who you're talking about. You need, you need to read it if, if you mm -hmm. haven't read it already. Because yeah. he, uh, in 1832, he, he was a painter. And he saw some Indians who were going to Washington to get some uh, trinkets from the government. Hmm. And he was so impressed with how they looked hmm. that he, he decided that he had to paint every single tribe in North America before they mm -hmm. disappeared. 
Mm-hmm. And so he made that his life's work. Mm-hmm. And he traveled up and down and right across the, the, the entire nation to paint. Mm-hmm. And he also recorded the folk customs and the, and the dances and the religious mm-hmm. ceremonies of all these different mm-hmm. tribes. And mm-hmm. this is in the, you know, the early part of the 19th century, not, not the mm-hmm. old Wild West of the cowboy mm-hmm. times. Mm-hmm. So I, I thoroughly recommend it if you uh, haven't read it. Yeah, I'll take a look at it. It's, it's... He also has the paintings too. So you, if you have mm-hmm. a chance, look through the paintings because you can see, yeah. I mean, you can see you're interested in this stuff, but he explains how it was made and has his paintings of exactly how it was in those days. Mm-hmm. So. See, I walked the red road. I have my whole life. I was raised native. So, you know, we're taught by our elders to stay away from books of that kind, uh, simply because the elders believe that they misrepresent the culture itself. I enjoyed looking at the paintings because I think they're amazing, you know, that somebody would have that talent. And uh, oftentimes, you know, natives wouldn't allow their photograph or paintings to be made because they believe that captured the spirit of them. And they didn't want that. But um, well, he talks about that. He talks about that issue. Some of them, Mm -hmm. some of them would feel that their spirit was being stolen. But then Mm -hmm. when he finished the painting, Mm-hmm. He said the, the, almost the, the majority uh, position was they were just so in love with the fact that they were going to live forever as, in this mm-hmm. painting mm-hmm. that they were giving him all these presents and they called him mm-hmm. a, a medicine man and, and that he had great mm-hmm. magic. Mm-hmm. And it, you really want to, re- you want, to, you want to read the book before you dismiss it. I thoroughly well, I'm not going to dismiss it. it. I'm not going to dismiss it. It's just, you know, we have a, a way amongst our, our Native communities, you know, um, Louise White Bull uh, was the niece of Sitting Bull. And um, she cautioned uh, all nations uh, against books in general. And the reason she did was that because when people would come amongst the people and document their culture, they were given misinformation. And um, Louise Elder White Bull used to say that we did that on purpose so that when people would come back to us with these teachings, we knew that this is where they got their teachings as opposed to from their elders. And that's why that was done. And, you know, it still holds true to this day. I've read books by individuals that were native, you see, but didn't walk the red road. And so they were capitalizing on the fact that they were native, but really didn't know anything about their culture. And, um, you know, I think all books have values. The thing to remember about books for me, John, is that that's somebody else's knowledge. And what I'm attempting to acquire is my own knowledge, you know, relative to that. I read and have read. I mean, I used to talk like a damn book because that's all I did was read. Once I learned how to read and write in prison, and I learned it at San Quentin, um, you know, books became my friends, my only friends. And so I read extensively. I put myself through college, and I understand the value of books insofar as being somebody else's knowledge. So I I would never dismiss, uh, particularly something that's recommended. Uh, and so I will take a look at that and perhaps we'll have a discussion about it. Um, but, uh, I enjoy, and I look at books, I think, um, in that context that that's somebody else's knowledge and the same will be true of my book. That's my knowledge. And, um, you know, it isn't to say that when I read something, I don't take something from that. There may be aspects that, um, intellectually, I understand emotionally, I understand spiritually that I understand that resonate with me. And that has value. Mike, could you tell us a little bit about your activism and the restrictions on you right now? Has that impaired your activism? 
Well, it has. I mean, you know, not having access to the internet uh, goes a long way toward that. I can't even access my website to talk to people, uh, to post a blog uh, or anything else. You know, my great niece uh, does what she can for me, and, and that's deeply appreciated. Um, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm in litigation. I, I have uh, essentially what comes down to the California District Attorneys Association. Uh, taking issue with the fact that I was released from prison at all. There were a lot of people that did not want me released, but I was released under the Youthful Offender Act and the Elder Offender Act. Those are recent uh, changes in the legislature here in California that facilitated my release. Governor Newsom um, supported that release, and um, the California District Attorneys Association took issue with that. So when they saw an opportunity um, to charge me with uh, crimes, they did so. Um, but there's nothing to those crimes. Now, that doesn't mean that I still don't have to litigate them. I do. But they've made me their poster boy. And by that, I mean that um, they object to the fact that I was released. They'd like to repeal the legislation that facilitated my release. And they want to use me as a poster boy in that regard. So that's the politics of what I'm dealing with. So they've got their foot on my neck. And they're going to keep their foot on my neck. Um, you know, it's just like when I had to leave the studio a moment ago, that was my studio engineer, you know, relative to it. Uh, I have to use that in order to do what I'm doing right now. I can't do it on my own. It's uh, prohibited by the court. You know, I can have a phone, but I can only make phone calls and text. I can't have access to any data or the Internet. I can have a computer, but I can only use it to work on, to write my, my legal cases and otherwise. And I'm in, in a number of courts right now. Um, but I have to take that and put it on a flash drive and then take it down to the post office and send it to an individual in San Francisco to download it for me. I'm putting up my own like podcast. A, Go ahead. It's like a serious violation of your human rights. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Just access to the Internet is a Supreme Court case that says that that's unconstitutional. But they take the position that they're going to infringe and impose upon my constitutional rights until another court tells them that they can't. It's, but So you have to jump through the hoops. You know, you know how that is. So that's what I'm doing right now is I'm jumping through those hoops. I've got a great defense team. Um, and so, you know, we're, these are the things that we're working on. Um, but it's a process, you know, and look. Um, look, I'm just an old cowboy. That's all I am. And, well, you can't uh, be both a cowboy and an Indian. I think you can. I think you can. See, that, that's a misnomer. <laughs> so, so, Mike, when these restrictions are lifted, is your activism focus, is it going to be on prisoners' rights? Is it going to be on helping young people, going into schools? What, what, what's your mission evolving into? Well, I really appreciate you asking, because what the mission involves is educating the public about, first and foremost, what John and I have been talking about today. You know, what it is to be put in a cage and how that impacts upon you. As John correctly points out, some people deal with it, some people don't. But for the most part, I mean, I look at the trauma that I deal with today, just as a result of 45 years of being incarcerated. Um, it would be ridiculous on my part to suggest that um, I'm unscathed as a result of those 45 years. I'm not. You know, I deal with traumas every day. I deal with PTSD every day. Um, but what I want to deal with by way of advocacy is uh, legislation, the legislature here in California, and so far as, you know, what they're implementing by way of helping people prior to being released from prison. 
you know, so that they're prepared to come back out into society as a productive member of society, as opposed to uh, someone that's going to um, infringe upon society um, because they're either an addict or they're involved in gangs or whatever it may be. Um, but one of the real issues that needs to be addressed are families of these individuals that are coming out, what they go through, what they're subjected to, the community itself, you know, what it has to contend with. You know, my wife, um, Ariel, is a mitigation specialist that works with death row prisoners and their families. You know, she has real insight into this. So together, uh, we intend to address these issues. Uh, I'm working with a, a dear friend of mine, Kevin, um, who's a therapist and who's worked within the prison system. That's where I met him. And uh, we now share a friendship and relationship outside of prison. And we're going up with a podcast to address these issues of what it is to be traumatized. You know, how do you deal with that trauma? Um, you know, I have Live, Learn, and Prosper that I started in prison in 2014, and it continues. But that's another thing that law enforcement is trying to shut down. And, um, you know, they do that by um, suggesting that uh, I've laundered money through that, that, um, that nonprofit organization. Well, all they had to do was look at the bank statements. They never even asked for the bank statements, but they made that allegation nonetheless in the press here in California. So now a lot of people won't support the nonprofit because they believe that I was laundering money through it. And it never happened, you see, but that's something that I have to clean up. And that's what they attempt to impose upon me by way of burden, because they know it's a burden to have to do that. I now have to face those charges and, and clarify for the court, as well as the jury, um, that there was never any money laundering, and I'll make my bank sta statements public, you see. But the thing is, is that law enforcement, after they arrested me for it, came and asked for the bank statements. Why didn't you ask for the bank statements to begin with? You see, that tells you the politic associated with this. And, um, you know, it's, it's, you know, politics in, in general are one thing, but, you know, um, judicial reform is really what we're talking about here. And so far as um, take someone like the California um, District Attorneys Association, see, their job is to incarcerate people. They're not interested in the truth. They're not interested in justice. They're interested in conviction and their quota as it relates to that. They will tell you otherwise, but that's just my opinion based on my experience with them and others. You know, I'm in the process right now. I just got a court ruling out of the 4th District Appellate Court on my commitment offense. So far, we've been able to take one of the murders back to court. You see, but ultimately what I'm after is exoneration. And I think I will be able to do that. But 50 years later, I'm still engaged in this process. You see, that says something about our judicial system and the idea of justice in general. But, you know, we're dealing with um, the inner cities. We're dealing with uh, addiction and gangs and um you know we're dealing with corruption you know within our governments uh, so all these things are issues you know that i want to advocate um not against all this but i want to advocate for processes that enable people um to care for themselves you know properly to educate themselves about what the real issues are and what's really going on and, you know, where they have power um, is with their vote. The people that they bring into office, 
You see, they have that power to make that determination to ensure that the people that come into office are doing their bidding politically, and that they don't have their own agenda. Well, the United States is known for playing dirty, and you're simply oh, yeah. describing that process. <laughs> yes. Yeah, you're so. right, John. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's not something that's new, certainly. You know, but the idea is, is that when somebody attempts to advance their career as a result of my history, then there's something wrong with that. You see, because they see an opportunity. Well, you're easy. You're easy to use right. because right. it's it's straight mad dog stuff. As soon as they right. say the Aryan Brotherhood, it, right. it, it it invokes all the worst kind mm-hmm. of images, right? It does. Yeah, it does. So that's the purpose behind education, you know. And and the idea is that you want to do that in a good way. See, not, not in a negative way, but in a good way, and you do that through um, discourse, through communication, through relationship. Um, through uh, weighing in on the issues and inviting others to weigh in on the issues so that people get a more rounded perspective relative to that so that they can make up their own mind as to what they believe and why they believe it. Uh, and I think that's critical, you know, to the issues that we're talking about here. It, it makes a huge difference. Um, and it's not really that difficult. But uh, the point I'm making, I suppose, is that the the impediments that they place before me, um, even though I'm used to them, um, are not just unfair. They're unjust. Uh, and they shouldn't be allowed. And there should be a mechanism in place to contend with that. So that's what I'm working toward, to uh, enlighten, educate, and um, generate and garner support for what I'm doing. And all I am, in a nutshell, is a servant. And I'm attempting to help others from my perspective of my history, my past, my experiences. Um, you know, I'm, I'm an alcohol and drug counselor certified by the state. I'm a life coach certified by the state. I'm a biologist by training. So, you know, I, I try to confine uh, my dialogue uh, to my experience and my education. And um, I'm looking for others to weigh in with their own experiences and their own education. I've promised John a traditional Sunday roast dinner here, and we're gonna oh, nice, get, we're, nice. we're gonna we're gonna get to the pub before it closes. Is oh, there nice. anything? Is there anything that either of you would like to say to the viewers? Oh no, I mean, I I just I'm really glad to have met you and uh, talked about these things, and and actually see the other side because uh, mm. I was only on one side, so mm-hmm. it's been really interesting. I've enjoyed. Yeah, it has been. Yeah, I have too. It, it uh, um. Actually, was looking forward to meeting you, John. Heard a lot about you, and I admire you, and I respect you. Um, Appreciate that, and uh, in, in everything that you're doing with your podcast and otherwise. But just by, you know, bringing those stories out, you know, that's a form of education, and uh, you know, that's that's an ongoing process. So I would encourage the viewers that if they have questions of any of us, that they ask those questions. That if they want to become involved in what we're doing, um, they can. It's really that simple. You know, if uh, they want issues that they think are important that they want addressed, let us know. We'll address them. You know, that's that's what it comes down to. So, you know, it's it's really an open book. And um, and I'm deeply appreciative of this opportunity um, with all the um, obstacles 
the hurdles that I have to contend with here presently, um, I'm deeply appreciative of this opportunity. And uh, well, so, I'd say you're overcoming them, and I think you'll uh, continue to do so. Thank you, John. Hmm. I appreciate that. Um, so thanks for having me on, Sean. And uh, John, it, it's been a real pleasure, brother. Okay, you take care. You too. Yeah, so really appreciate you guys both spending all this time with us to come together and do this. It has been absolutely mind-blowing and magical just to go down those avenues of, from this era, really, where there's not many people left to describe it as articulately as you two guys can do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the fact that John's come on here, I don't know if you heard earlier, Mike, but... I've been watching everything that you've got online in the, you know, in the last couple of weeks and, and, and months mm-hmm. or so and all the different stories, but for John mm-hmm. to come on and be this catalyst mm-hmm. for you to go down these roads and, and all these stories to emerge that we've never heard before. It's, mm-hmm. it's been really special for me. I've hardly said a word. I've just sat there mesmerized. <laughs> I know that's <laughs> what all your comments are going to be. All the comments are going to be about how you just you just sat there like a store mannequin and just said nothing. <laughs> well, it um, yeah, it it I, I guess it's an opportunity for all of us, and it's appreciated. So, you know, this isn't the end of it. Believe that. So there's uh, a lot more to talk about, and I, I'm um, I'm hopeful that we'll do just that, and uh, that we'll continue this dialogue. And like I said, uh, I hope your viewers uh, weigh in, you know, um, and uh, make sure, make sure you give me the book report, Mike, when you finish it, huh? <laughs> well, you can count on it yes. in, in triplicate. <laughs> so much love and respect to John and Mike and you, the viewers, please let us know in the comments what you thought about this. If you've got questions for either of our guests, put them in the comments as well, and we will get round to it. And today we filmed John, and we're going down this road now of looking at gangster movies, uh, armed robbery movies. John mm. today was in here and he's done a lot of commentary on famous movie clips, gangster clips, etc. So look forward to that coming out as well. Huge thank you for watching, spending this time with us. Cheers. Take care out there wherever you are in the world. Thank you. All right. Gadfly Press is proud to announce the publication of Big Joe Egan, the toughest white man on the planet. And that statement came from none other than Mike Tyson, who wrote the introduction to the book. If you want to check it out, the link is in the description box below the video. It's got almost five stars on Amazon. 
and it is mind-blowing stories of Joe's rise in boxing. You've got the crime story of what went down at the pub, the war at the pub, Joe's incarceration, and how the toughest white man on the planet could not be held down, how he rebuilt his life. He's gone from strength to strength, and what he's, you know, you can see right now what he's doing all over the world. So links will be in the description box below the video. Thanks for watching. And if you want to see the full podcast, it's on our channel now. In which he talks about Michael Francis, Tyson, and loads of big names that he's worked with. Fascinating stories. Check it out. So the book, Big Joe Egan, Toughest White Man on the Planet, is available in all three formats. Audio, ebook, and paperback worldwide on Amazon. Link in the description box.